Number 10, I can't believe it. We made it to 10 of these. And there. this is like a lot of hours. And uh, yeah, I don't expect you to listen to these in one attentive. In fact, these are more for leisurely attention and listening. Like you listen to the radio, not like you intent. Although, hey, if you want to intently listen and hang on every word and absorb everything here, uh, that would be some sort of ideal. But the human attention span usually doesn't work that way. I mean, sometimes I do get that, like listening to Gene Shepard, and I'm in my chair, and the man's style and monologue, up to perhaps at specific shows, engages me and sucks me into some sort of mind meld and some old radio shows, uh, all of these things, like some Vic and Sage shows you can just fall right into. And that's really, but I haven't, since the last time I put together an appreciator with Vic and Sade, haven't heard any Vic and Sade. So without any further ado, let's kind of kickstart this episode, this installment of these vast compilations of silliness with some of the best silliness ever concocted Paul Reimer's Vic and Sade. Hello there. Get ready to smile again with radio's home folks Vic and Sade. Vic and Sade, written by Paul Reimer, is brought to you each weekday by the makers of the new Sure Mix Crisco. Honestly, it's a crime the way those people over at the Crisco kitchens keep tempting my appetite. Do you know what they sent over to me today? Well, it's another one of those swell layer cakes they make. Oh, boy, this one's really a honey. There's some kind of a fluffy white frosting on it. And then there's some bitter chocolate spread thin-like over the top. I think I'll cut myself a piece if you don't mind. Mmm. Mmm. There's little bits of chocolate in the cake, too. Mmm, boy. And is this cake light? Why, I'm telling you, it could walk right away in a cloud. And then you'll find that cakes made with the new Sure-Mix Crisco are decidedly on the light side. In fact, they're lighter cakes than you can make with any other shortening we know of. You know why? Well, it's because Crisco is made differently from other shortenings. That's the truth. It's made by an exclusive process that you just won't find in any other shortening you can buy. That's why only Crisco can give you cakes as light as this one here. And I think I'll have another bite, if you don't mind. Mm. You see, this special process makes Crisco an active blender in your cake batter. Why, Crisco just seems to reach right out and take hold of the milk and flour and eggs and blend them more thoroughly than other shortenings do. That's a fact. Crisco gives you the smoothest cake batters you ever have seen. Satin smooth cake batters that mean lighter cakes for you. Of course, I can't put Crisco into your cakes. You've got to do that. So, look, next time you bake one of your favorite cakes, use the same recipe, the same ingredients... But change your shortening. Use the new Sure Mix Crisco. Then you'll have a cake that's really light, like this one I'm eating here. Because Crisco gives you lighter cakes. Yes, lighter cakes than any other shortening. Well, sir, it's late afternoon as our scene opens now. And here in the living room of the small house, halfway up in the next block, we find Mrs. Victor Gook and her son, Mr. Rush Gook. The latter has just this moment arrived home from an after-school session of football in Tatman's vacant lot and is standing near the library table contemplating with interest an open shoebox. Listen. 
But it says in big letters on the wrapping paper, do not open until Christmas. I opened it anyway. To see if the easy slippers were too big or too little. I'm just sure Robert Lorstein will visit us around Christmas time, and naturally they'll expect to see me wearing my easy slippers. And if they didn't fit, it'd be embarrassing. Oh. I decided not to take any chances. But I've told Lorstein over the long-distance telephone you took size five-and-a-half easy slippers. I know he said five-and-a-half for a fact because I was right here and heard him. Well, either she didn't understand him correct or else sizes run different in Carol. Easy slippers don't any more fit than a rabbit. Too little? Too big. Well, you're <laughs> going to send them back? Gov is. Gov? Of course. He and Lorestein cooked up this plot about my Christmas present. I got nothing to do with it. It's their secret. I'm not supposed to know anything about any easy slippers. <laughs> you haven't told Gov what he's going to do, have you? Well, naturally not. The package only just arrived this afternoon. He'll scream like a panther. Why? Because he hates lady stuff worse than a poison reptile. Makes him sick to his stomach when he gets I involved. I expect he'll survive. Oh. All he'll be required to do is mail the package back to Carol along with a letter explaining there's been a mistake in the size. He'll scream like a panther. He's welcome to scream like a panther. Have you examined the easy slippers? No. Where are they? Davenport. Oh. I think Robert made them himself. <laughs> There's a steel chain holding them together, just as advertised. Well, so they won't ever get separated and lost from each other. <laughs> uh-huh. Robert's idea. No, no, and Robert and Lorstein, the way I do, I figured I'd better open the box and investigate the easy slippers. They're so careless about stuff. And sure enough, darn easy slippers a mile too large. Well, like I say, I'm almost positive they'll visit us sometime after Christmas and... It'll be embarrassing for everybody concerned if my easy slippers fell off my feet. Uh-huh. Your father can send them back with a little note. Notice the pictures on the toes? Yes. On one toe is a picture of a baby chick hatching out of an egg, and another toe is a picture of an Indian fellow smoking the pipe of peace. Uh-huh. <laughs> is there any connection? Not that I know of. When Robert's making things in his workshop, he gets odd ideas home, about... I think. Hear him in the kitchen? Hey, you guys. Hi, hi, do? Hi, hi. Greetings, Sadie. You might as well attend to this right now without delay. Give Robert all the time in the world to make new easy slippers and get him back here before Christmas. Scream like a panther. What? Govel scream like a panther. Fiddly whittle. <laughs> what you bet? Fiddly whittle. The wind it doth blow and we shall have snow, and what will poor Robin do then, poor thing? Getting cold out? Yes, indeed. Notice how the naughty fingers of Jack Frost have pinched my cheek? Uh-huh. Stand by, Rush, old chum, and I'll give you the privilege of taking my hat and coat in the hallway. <laughs> You're in jolly spirits. Who wouldn't be living in this perfect world? Shall I give you a kiss, Sadie? <laughs> Don't bother. Suit you, suit me, Mr. Spooner. Plenty of other girls. Here you are, raise your strap. One gentleman's coat, one gentleman's hat. <laughs> okay. Ruthie and I have we planned to go down to Yamton this afternoon and see what kind of bargains have got in wash rags, but at the last minute she what phoned up. in the box? Box? Oh, Yes, once. Do not open until Christmas. Robert and Lorstein's present. Oh, easy slippers? Uh, they're there on the Davenport. Pretty quick service. It was only the week before last I talked to Lorstein long distance. Well, don't tell I... me. I don't know anything about you talking to Lorstein long distance. Keep your little secrets to yourself, please. Lady stuff. No, no lady stuff. We don't need to beat around the bush this trip. It's all cut and dried. Lady stuff, Rush. <laughs> Most involved lady stuff you ever saw. All right, mister. Oh. I'm not involved. Here's the thing of it. Just got through telling Rush. 
Knowing Robert and Lorestein the way I do, I'm I not figure... involved in any lady stuff, Sage. No, let a person tell. I simply refuse to be involved in any lady stuff. Will you let a person tell? Mm-hmm. The package only just arrived a little while ago. Knowing Robert and Lorestein the way I do, and being familiar with how careless they are about stuff, I decided I'd better open the package and try on the easy slippers to see if they fit. Collars to walnuts. They'll visit us around Christmas time, and if the easy slippers ain't right in every way, shape, and form, it'll be embarrassing for everybody concerned. Now, isn't that true? Mm, I suppose so. Well, of course it's true. You notice easy slippers, Gov? Uh-uh. On the toe of one, there's a picture of a baby chick hatching out of an eggshell, and on the toe of the other, there's a picture of an Indian guy smoking the pipe of peace. Mm. Robert, for you. Such queer notions he gets. Mm. This steel chain holding the slippers together looks too short. It is too short. Much too short. Ought to be three times as long. When I tried on the slippers and attempted to walk, I almost fell down. person has to take little tiny mincing steps to where it'd take a week to get any place. Better mention that in your letter. In my letter? A letter's got to be written. I've already said I refuse to have... Look, let me talk. This isn't what you call lady stuff, so don't let yourself get excited. I write no letter. I write no letter. Will you listen once? Easy slippers are too large. A lot too large. And the chain holding them together is too short. person can't hardly walk. All right, you've agreed with me that Robert and Lorestein will most likely put in an appearance sometime around Christmas. You also agreed it would be embarrassing for everybody if the easy slippers were wrong in any way. Well, they are wrong. They're too big and the... Chain holding them together is too short. A letter's got to be written. You don't need to look at me. The easy slippers have to be mailed back to Carol so Robert can fix new ones, and a letter's got to be written. You don't need to look at me. I'll die Now, what you I... doing, Rush? Going to try on my easy slippers? Do you mind? Get them soiled. I won't walk around. Why is there a picture of a baby chick hatching out of a shell there at the toe of one slipper? I haven't the slightest notion. Why is there a picture of an Indian guy smoking a pipe of peace on the other easy slipper? Haven't the slightest notion. Oh, this little letter business won't take you five minutes. Why, George, they are big. Well, naturally, I can't write the letter. <laughs> because I'm not supposed to know anything about my Christmas present. That's strictly between Laura Steen and you. I'm all in the dark about the wicked plots you scalawags hatch up. <laughs> oh. Sure. Look what big easy slippers. Yes, terrible big. Such a short chain. I started to walk to the kitchen and give up when I got to the bookcase. It had taken me till next Easter. At least. Uh, here's what I thought you could say, Vic. Oh. And please stop the nonsense. Yeah. Here's what I thought you could say. Dear Laura Steen, ha, 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 ha. Oh. Will you cut that out? Oh. Well, George, these are the most uncomfortable half-wit easy slippers I ever come across. I wouldn't anymore well, Take them off and put them back in the box before they get dirty. Oh. Uh, dear Lorestein, ha, 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 ha. Well, Lorestein, the easy slippers arrived in wonderful shape, and Sadie is completely in the dark. We certainly pulled the wool over her eyes. I am writing this in the basement by lantern light. I guess I don't require any help on this rush. No, but this is a good idea I got. Uh, we certainly pulled the wool over Sadie's eyes, hey, Lorestein? Well, Lorestein... Sadie has gone to bed, and I am writing this down cellar in the coal room by lantern light. Uh, we don't want to get caught in this wicked plot of scalawags hatched up, hey, Lorestein? 
I couldn't keep the gilly look off in my face at the supper table tonight when Sadie asked me to pass some mashed potatoes. That'll be And enough. I pretended to have a violent fit of coughing. Well, Lorstein, old fellow conspirator... I said that'll be enough, Rush. Okay. Is a chain on there to hang the easy slippers up by? No, it's to hold the easy slippers together. So they won't ever get separated and lost from each other. Oh. Here's what I thought you could say in your nice little letter. In my nice little letter? Yes. Oh, dear, Lorestine. Ha, 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 ha. Well, Lorestine, the easy slippers arrived in wonderful shape, and Sadie is completely in the dark. We certainly pulled the wool over her eyes. The reason I'm writing, Lorestine... I'm afraid you and Robert made a mistake about the size. I tried them on Sadie while she was asleep, and they're too big, so I went to Will work. you keep out of this, please? No, but this is a peach of a stunt. Airtight, waterlogged, and foolproof. I tried the easy slippers on Sadie while she was asleep, and they're too big, so I went to work. I warned you for the last time, Rush. Oh. What's the matter? Oh, shut up, Robert. What? Why you got your face in your hands? Say in your nice little letter like this. The reason I'm writing, Lorestine, I'm afraid you and Robert made a mistake about the size. I compared your easy slippers with some old ones of Sadie's, and yours are considerable longer and wider. <laughs> I am enclosing in the envelope an outline of Sadie's feet drawn with pen and ink on tablet paper. I expect it will help you a good deal. I have a suggestion. Just keep it to yourself. Mm -hmm. Might as well take your face out of your hands and quit playing the baby and do this little simple thing and have it over with. Oh. Lands. Childishness that crops out in a grown-up man. I'm going out in the kitchen. Get pen and ink and my stylish yellow stationery out of the library table drawer, Rush. Okay. And uh, give them to your father. Okay. Then you come out in the kitchen, too, because I need things from the grocery store. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Better snap out of it and get busy, go. No. I'll fix you up with pen and ink. Why is there a picture of a baby chick hatching out of an eggshell on the toe of one easy stepper? Haven't the slightest idea. Why is there a picture of an Indian guy? Smoking a pipe of peace on the toe of the other easy step. You haven't the slightest idea. Oh. Don't cry, Gup. Which concludes another brief interlude at the small house halfway up in the next block. But be sure to come along when we drop in on Vic and Save the next time. This is Ed Hurley, he's speaking. Nine out of ten, nine out of ten, leading stocking makers say. Use Ivory Flakes, new Ivory Flakes. You'll help stockings wear that way. And believe me, longer stocking wear is something that interests every woman in America today, since silk stockings may soon be hard to get. Yes, and thousands of women are turning to new double-quick ivory flakes for the answer to longer stocking wear. Just follow these simple do's and don'ts for stocking care. Do wash your stockings every night. Don't let them pile up. Do use lukewarm suds of pure ivory flakes. Don't use hot water or strong soaps. Do wash your stockings gently. Don't rub. We promise you this easy care every night can really help you get longer wear. Remember... That's the stocking care. Nine out of ten leading makers of famous stockings advise for both their silks and their nylons. And uh, nine out of ten can't be wrong. Oh, nine out of ten, nine out of ten leading stocking makers say Use Ivory Flakes, new Ivory Flakes. 
You'll help stockings wear that way. Every night, new ivory plate, and your stockings really wear. That's right. You structure your evening come every night. You wash your stockings with these ivory plates. You have... Why would you let them stack up? Why have more than one pair of stockings? You can just have one. And it's just, what else are you doing of an evening? The <laughs> wash your stockings. And I, I love the, the Crisco ad. It, it, there's no, like, drama. It's just this guy waxing so excited about these cakes and the Sure Mix Crisco and the blending. And still... I mean, I'm not a baker, but to use Crisco, that's like, do they really do that in 2023? Is there anyone, anywhere, who like, that's their secret ingredient when they make cakes or something? Have I missed some secret, I don't know, um, <laughs> phrases like, it's a real honey. Oh, that's just... I love that kind of language. Yes, it's archaic. And uh, yeah, the Christmas and awkward gifts was the theme of our episode. And Sage says, fiddle-dee-whittle. And Vic says, no lady stuff. Yeah, that lady stuff. However, when you really think about it, 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 it is Vic's best bet to just write this letter real quick, outline her foot on a piece of paper, on that stylish yellow stationery. Yellow stationery, stylish. Just these words that are put together as if there's this great meaning, and it just sounds like yellow stationery and stylish. But people wrote letters back then. There wasn't any of this emails and uh, so many phone calls if somebody lived out of town. And the whole thing, the, the, the subterfuge of Christmas presents back in that era. And yes, Christmas must have been coming back. And now, I mean, and even though things move faster, we now think about Christmas so much more, so much more early. I mean, it's already what? It's not even August 31st, and already the Halloween stuff is starting to creak out of the corners of stores way out here in the middle of nowhere, truth or consequences, New Mexico, much less, oh boy. And uh, the, the idea of the family, I don't know if I've mentioned this, the whole family comes up, the, the Rush comes home from school for lunch, and Vic comes home from work, and they all have lunch together. That's really, it, it's of a time that actually I would like to have lived in. A slower time, a more, I don't know, it just seems so much sweeter and familial in some strange way. And uh, going to, uh, is there any trip, you, you do know that there is a site called The Crazy World of Vic and Sade, which is what uh, Jimbo put together way back and Let's see. Oh, yeah, the, 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 the trivia section. Jimbo wrote something for every existing and a lot of stuff on non-existing episodes. And there used to be scripts up here. But uh, wherever he was hosting the scripts, they appeared to be lost forever. He passed on. 
and didn't leave anybody that information, so they're gone. I mean, at least from the site, I'm pretty sure these scripts exist somewhere and are certainly at the University of Wisconsin just waiting there for, uh, I suppose, copyrights to wear out at this point because they're, you can't go there and copy them. You can't go there. I guess you can take notes, but that that's a strange vacation. That's a very Vic and Sade-esque. I'm taking my vacation to the university to uh, copy out pieces of Vic and Sade scripts for my vacation this year. And, and writing this letter to Laura Steen and that Vic has to, that's just, well, it's very Vic and Sade. And I'm, I'm glad to share this stuff with you. In fact, what we're going to do right now is I'm going to dig up an old Vic and Sade, World of Vic and Sade episode that Jimbo did, the Vic and Sade cast, which ran for a number of episodes on the Overnight Scape Underground. And so long as we're in that mood and we haven't had any in a while, I see no reason not to just keep going on this theme a little longer. And uh, now let's sit back and we'll listen together. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the third, the third Vic and Sade cast. I am Jimbo. I am your host. And also with me is the other host, the the quote-unquote co-host. <laughs> it is Mr. P.Q. River. Say hello, P.Q. River. Ah, yes, I, I, I'm back. I, in fact, uh, just to digress a little, I've, I've almost just about risen from the dead. Oh, man, I had some sort of pippin, flu, stomach, headache thingy this morning, boy. Oh, but this is perfect. I am ready and excited to hear and uh, talk about Vic Insade with you, Jimbo. And today we got four new episodes to explore with you. Three of them are from 38 and 39, 1938, 39. And then the other one is a 1946 episode. Uh, because Peaky River wants to explore that, and uh, so we're going to do that. So first of all, let's listen to the March 3rd, 1938 episode, Official Host. Well, sir, it's late afternoon as we enter the small house halfway up on the next block down. And here in the kitchen, we find Mr. Victor Gook and his son, Mr. Rushbrook. Mr. Victor Gook has drawn the kitchen table over by the sink where the light's the best, and he's doing a spot of office work at home. And Mr. Rushcook, who just this moment arrived from school, removes his cap and overcoat. Listen. Are through there, John? I am through with the actual labor. All I have to do now is copy some figures neatly on a sheet of paper. It's all right if I talk then, huh? You go ahead. Mom's not there? Mom's next door at you and the fat with Ma Donahue. What's on your mind? I've been doing considerable thinking about the party we're going to have a week from Saturday. Hmm? Uh, reach me my eraser. I dropped it on the floor. That party was taken right out of my hands, you know. Yes, do I understand. Here. Hey. Mom started out by making me official host. The party was to be in honor of nicer Scott, and I was going to be in charge of all arrangements. Uh-huh. But she figured too many people would have to be invited, so 
she decided to leave out the kids <laughs> and took over the arrangements herself. You see the good sense of that, don't you? We can't get the population of the United States in this modest dwelling. No, just the same. What exactly is your beef? If I could be reinstated as official host, I'd put on a party you'd hear about. You have my sympathy, crabmate, but I don't see what I can do about the Mitty. Well, I was thinking maybe you could persuade mine. To reinstate you as official host? Yeah. It's hardly in my department. You'll be present at the party a week from next Saturday. You'll want to have a bang-up time, won't you? Sure. The plans I got worked out would guarantee you a bang-up time. That's so? You'd have so much enjoyment you'd never forget it. Tell it, Papa. All afternoon I've been running stuff through my head. You went to school this afternoon, didn't you? Yeah, but I never paid much attention in class. My mind was busy on sensational arrangements for this party. Mm. I got sense worked out people will talk about for the next 50 years. Sounds like you plan a social function of a rather ambitious nature. I do. Uh, reach me my race again, will you? I seem to be all butterfingers today. You know what the party will be like if Mom gives it, don't you? No, what? It'll be... Here's your racer. Thanks. Dull. The party will be dull under your mother's management? Well, maybe dull is a harsh word. Maybe it is. Maybe ordinary is better. <laughs> the people will come here. They'll hang their hat and coat in the hall. They'll all go in the living room and sit down. They'll talk back and forth. After a while, Mom will whip out ice cream and cake. They'll talk a while longer. Pretty soon they say goodnight and go home. Party's all over. That setup don't appeal to you, huh? No. Like everybody else's party. There's nothing different about it. Let's hear some of your ideas. Can I expect cooperation from you if I confide in you? Cooperation? Will you try to persuade Mom I ought to be reinstated as official host? Well, frankly, Margaret, I don't think I could throw much weight. Your mother's decisions on matters like this are generally pretty cut and dry. Well, you could try. You could come whooping in all excited and slap her on the back and say, By golly, you say, that rush sure has rung the bell. She's got stunts lined up for this party a week from Saturday that'll make you jump over the people's bank building. Hmm. The basketball cheerleader, Nate Crabtree, wrote a sentence on the blackboard at a pep meeting we had last week. Sentence was, Enthusiasm is contagious. Enthusiasm is contagious? Enthusiasm is contagious. And that's supposed to be true. Look, pretty soon Mom will be home. Suppose when she opens the door, you jump out of your chair like a skyrocket and say, My gosh, kiddo, that doggone rush has got stunts doctored up for this party a week from Saturday that'll make you swallow your shoes. Hmm. Enthusiasm is contagious. Work it right and you'll have Mom reinstating me as official host in 40 seconds. Well, uh... What are some of these stunts to you? Got them right here in my pocket, wrote down on a piece of paper. In the past, Melon Seed, I've noticed you're apt to show a tendency to lean towards impractical extremes. I approve of the happy fires of youth and all that, but I've reached a conservative age. Listen to Okay. Two physicians and three trained nurses in constant attendance. How's that? If I'm reinstated as official host of the party, I'm going to have a platform in the front hallway. On this platform will be five chairs. In the chairs will be seated two doctors and three nurses, all dressed in white. What's the idea? Suppose somebody gets sick at the party. Why should anybody get sick? Well, some might eat too much ice cream. Others might uh, get exhausted laughing at the jolly jokes. You can't ever tell. People are human beings and probably get sick any minute of the day or night. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it gives class to a party. Innocent bystanders downtown will be saying, Hey, Walter! Hear about the big social function they had on Virginia Avenue. 
Two doctors and three nurses was hired to keep eye on the kid. Hmm. There'll be a piece in the newspaper. Uh, one of the most stylish events of the whole pleasure-crazed social season was given last night by Mr. Rush Cook of Virginia Avenue. Among those present was... and so forth and so on. Got any more fancy features? Got plenty. For one thing, I'm going to call the fire department. You uh, don't contemplate livening up the party by uh, setting the house on fire? Oh, no. <laughs> I was somewhat apprehensive. I love to see people have fun at my home, but I draw the line. Here's the angle. Along about 9.30 in the evening, party's kind of sag. Appreciate the angle I'm attempting to put across. <laughs> Different guests start yawning, and the official host begins to get desperate. He wonders, what the heck could I better do to put some pep in things? <laughs> Well, I got that problem solved. I'm going to telephone the fire department. False alarm? Sure. Everybody enjoys watching fire wagons. And these fire wagons will stop right in front of our house. Great sport for everybody. I uh, have a discouraging note. Yeah? There's a severe penalty for turning in false alarm. Yes, sir? Ten years in jail or something. You can see for yourself that while the fire engines are coming here on a false alarm... A real fire might break out somewhere and make it disagreeable all around. Yeah. Well, guess I'd better cross that one off my list. Might be the best thing. But, uh, your next thing. There'll be a policeman in uniform at the party. He'll walk around among the people all during the evening and sort of keep an eye on things. You're afraid our guests will steal the poo spoon? No. What are you afraid they'll steal? Nothing. The policeman will just be an ornament. He'll add tone to the party. Keep order and see that nobody makes a disturbance. Very fashionable. Ain't it, though? I imagine the people we invite to the party will be greatly flattered. Sure. Of course, I hope your policemen don't find it necessary to hit any of our friends over the head with his billy club. Oh, he won't do anything like that. He'll just mingle with the crowd. Of course, if groups start ganging up in doorways and stuff, he'll come along and holler, break it up, break it up, in a friendly sort of way. Hmm. That ought to get printed in the newspaper, too. Uh, among the stylish features at Mr. Rushcook's big social event Saturday night was the presence of a police officer who prevented riots and various other crimes. Hmm. Hot stuff? Yeah. Uh, tell me more of your plan. All right. Here's the big super special stunt. Everybody's going to get tattooed with my compliments. Tattooed? Yeah. There's a tattoo fellow that's just started up business down on West 7th Street. I'm going to hire him to come out here the night of the party and tattoo all the various guests. You're going to tattoo pictures on him? No, words. Uh, in memory of the finest social event I ever attended, Mr. Rushcook's party, March 12, 1938. Mm -hmm. How you like that? It's uh, certainly different. Another idea of mine is to have 30... Uh, I believe that's all I got time for now, Harriet. Going someplace? Yeah, got these figures all copied. think I'll stroll down to the office with him. Well... Will you work on mine? Sure. Persuader, I ought to be reinstated as official host at the party. Okay. You can say for yourself, I'll really put on a social function if I get the chance. Mm, no doubt about it. What you going to do now? Telephone Rooster Davis. He'll be greatly interested in my various things. Mm. Uh, 467HA, please. Correct. I can trust you, can't I? What do you mean? Not to be telling my plans around town. Oh, sure. I'm going to bind Rooster to secrecy. I won't be there to a soul. Well, if your mother gets home before I do, tell her I've done. Okay. So long. So long. Hello, Rooster. How can you not 
uh, feel Russia's enthusiasm for this uh, bizarre party. Number one, they can say don't have parties. They do not have parties. This is the only uh, party we know that they ever give. Now, they do have people over the house now and then. But a party? No, not a party. And this is a party for Nicer Scott. This is a... Nicer Scott is one of those kids that Rush sometimes can't stand. Most of the time he he can't stand him. And why he's giving him a party, I don't know. But uh, Nicer must have done something for Rush. Rush is uh, very enthusiastic. and It's fun to listen to... His ideas, which are all ridiculous. And it's fun to listen to Vic, instead of Sade here, uh, listen to his ideas. Now, Vic is actually at home working, just getting finished what he was doing. Probably doesn't really want to listen to uh, Rush give... Give him a list of dumb ideas for his party. But Vic is a good sport. And uh, as I've said on many occasions, the moments between Vic and Rush, when they're just by themselves, are very precious moments. I really wish somebody out there that has a son and loves Vic and Sade would write... uh, something and give it to me so I can put it on the website that explores the fact that uh, what a a father and son love is like and compare it to Vic and Rush. But uh, I digress. Sade is not in this episode. And it's a good thing she's not because if she was... This episode, uh, as we know it, would be ruined, ruined, because you can hear Sade saying, oh, Rush, you're you're such a high school boy, you're such a, <laughs> whatever it would be, it wouldn't be pretty, and uh, Rush would be deflated and be hurt. Why do you want to do that to Rush? Listen, listen to this episode, and... Uh, there's no way you could say that uh, Rush isn't being the uh, normal 14-year-old kid here. I've listened to this episode probably 15, 20 times because I like it so much. It's one of these ones I listen to over and over. It's impossible for me to listen to this episode and not be amused as all get out. Uh, A lot of odd things at the party that Rush is suggesting. But uh, the fact that everybody gets a free tattoo (laughs) is pretty pretty unusual. Because a lot of his friends from school, uh, same age as him, uh, 14-ish, are going to be at the party. And he's going to want them all to get tattooed. Just everything about this uh, episode is pretty awesome. Like I said, though, the the best thing about this episode is there's no Sade. Now, Sade obviously lends her own sense of levity and jocularity to uh, the various episodes that we encounter with her. 
And especially when we're dealing with the Vic uh, in the Lodge or just Vic and his preposterous ideas, it's wonderful to have Sade on board to crush Vic because that's what we expect. We don't want Sade to crush Resh, but she so often does, uh, you know, nine out of ten episodes. Every now and then she will appease Rush, but uh, you just never know when that's going to happen. And this episode, you know it's not going to happen. And you know she's going to say, no, son, I'm in charge of this party. You're just a little 14-year-old kid. There's going to be adults at this party. I can't have you having uh, tattoo artists and police officers and calling in false alarms. and uh, She's not going to go for that. So, What do you say, PQ? Well, I say, Jimbo, uh, that this was a ripping episode. Uh, yeah, this is, this is an all-time favorite one. Uh, reinstated as official host. I, I can still, in my mind's eye, see it handwritten where I hand-wrote it on the... Um, cassette that I used to own with this. I had these 90-minute cassettes, and I had written the official titles of the episodes on little labels and made them all fancy, so they look, well, you know, professional. They look cool. I did, they had the little cool drawings and cross-hatching on the edges, and uh, yeah, this is Rush at his kid-scheming best and i didn't know it was the only episode with the idea of a party but that makes sense because it is the small house halfway up in the next block and i always see it as just this tiny almost no walking space you know you got your davenport and the 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 main living room is kind of tiny and the chair and the davenport and the library table and the you know the the shelves there and it doesn't seem like there's like this big open space anywhere where you would have more than a handful of people at the small house halfway up in the next block um rhymer is just it's it is this reminds me of me as a kid kind of you know the kind of party i well i don't know about the tattoos but uh when where when one's ideas of what you do at a party are still kind of distorted and weird uh yeah oh, and, and, and as a kid actor i mean God, Rush Gook, although I guess by this point, uh, what, he's probably 12 years old, 13 years old. Uh, It's still fine work for a young man. And uh, uh, Vic, unlike like he says, if Sade were there, I mean, it would have ended with uh, him saying he didn't pay much attention at school all day. That that would have been the end of it right then and there. And uh, like he said, it would have been a very different episode because it would have been like uh, the story of, uh, you know, this is with the meeting for purposes of eating fish dinner that uh, we will never know the end of. Uh, and, and Vic also pulls off a few really uh, when he find they get down to brass tacks and Vic says all right okay I'm gonna listen the first how's that that uh, you can go back and listen it, that is just so he hits that line it's priceless it's just and and the whole thing is just one big word picture um 
Uh, you mentioned father-son love. Uh, yeah, Vic and Sade has an interesting take on it, but I look at that like I look at uh, most domestic stuff from the era. It was a different sort of family. I mean, the father was far more... It was just a different social situation than uh, the nuclear family or non-family whatever we would I, I haven't been in a uh, you know mother father and offspring situation in long enough that I probably would have no clue how to relate it to modern times um but uh one more point of agreement here that I wrote down Sade is a rush crusher oh yeah she's the kind of mom who's just oh man hammering a young man into a respectable grown man now the november 30th 1938 episode uh, vic's new hat well sir it's early evening as we enter the small house halfway up in the next block now and here in the living room we find our friends abiding quietly home mr victor good is established at the library table playing himself a dashing game of solitaire mrs victor good occupies her husband's easy chair reading the newspaper and young Mr. Rushgook, on the Davenport, stares unseeingly at the pages of his algebra textbook. And now this conversation. Listen. Want to meet me downtown tomorrow afternoon? What for? Something to your father. Are you referring to the purchase of the hat? Yeah. Suppose you leave the office around 3.30 or so, and we'll meet in a Peabody. Oh, just did. I can buy my own hat. No, you can't. I hear people talking about hats. What you do is dash in the store like a house of fire and take the first thing they show you. Since organized society credits me with sufficient intelligence to permit me to walk the public streets without a street jacket, it might be assumed that I'm smart enough to purchase an article of wearing apparel without guardianship and supervision. Hey, how'd you like that, Tim? Pretty good. My next address is scheduled for Tuesday at 2 o'clock. Shall we do that, then? Oh, heck, I'll drop by Kleeberger's tomorrow on my way home from work. Yes, and what would you buy? I'd buy Some a... great big old wide brim cowboy thing. No, sir, I'm going with you. Let's say 3 o'clock. We'll meet in at Kleeberger's and see what they got, and then step over to Hamilton's and Silver's. I don't want to trace all over town just to buy a doggone hat. You want to see what the different stores have, don't you? Are you so fidgety I could Hats scream? Hats generally run you five dollars. Five dollars is quite an outlay for people in our circumstances. Pays to shop around. That's the way I do. Why, before I buy a ten-cent wash rag, I make the round. That's because you enjoy looking at junk and chewing the fat with clerks. I enjoy getting the most for my money. That's what I enjoy. Smelly Clark's uncle Sap enjoys quite a reputation for being a spendthrift. Does he? Yeah. Why, take that occasion when he escorted his lady friend to Peoria for purposes of enjoying fish dinner. You told us that. When? I don't know. The other day. Sometime. I know I started to tell her. Him and this girl went to Peoria and ate fish. They didn't eat fish. No? No. That's the whole point of the story. They planned to eat fish, but fate intervened. And there's enough comical details in the story to choke a horse. Hmm. And the conclusion of the story is so funny, you'll roll on the floor. Mm. Here's the way it goes. It just so happened that Smelly Clark's Uncle Sap took it in his head to escort his lady friend to Peoria for purposes of enjoying fish dinner. On the way, an argument sprung up, and Smelly Clark's Uncle Sap informed his lady friend... Here's more or less on the order what I want you to have, Dad. Pardon me, Willie. Common courtesy. You want to show your father this picture in the paper. Dad. Hold it up. 
It's a Kleberger advertisement, too. How do you like that hat? The brim's too narrow. Now, listen, mister. If you think we're going downtown tomorrow and buy you a broad-brimmed hat, you're mighty badly mistaken. You're not any cowboy from Pennsylvania, you know. You're a businessman, and you have to wear something neat and conservative. Bunk. I'll say. Yes, I think this is just about the ticket. I'll tell Kleeberger to show it to me first thing. I'll say I want to look at the hat they advertised in the paper. You think it's just about the ticket. You'll tell Kleeberger so-and-so. I'm the slob that's going to wear the doggone hat. You'd buy a hat that looked like the inside of a gunny sack if you got a chance. If I choose to wear a hat that looks like the inside of a gunny sack, who's business? I'll tear this out. Take it along with me tomorrow. <laughs> Do you know the name of it? Name of what? This hat. No. <laughs> the Baltimore Banker. What? The Baltimore Banker. That's printed underneath. Mm. Here's a lid for younger fellas. The brim twists up flashy on the side and... There's a feather sticking in the ribbon. The Boulevard Sutter. That's foolishness. Yeah, it is kind of, ain't it? Mom, I am still waiting to tell the story I started. Oh, Smelly's uncle went to Peoria and ate fish. Smelly's uncle did not go to Peoria and eat fish. His lady friend ate fish. His lady friend did not eat fish. What'd she eat? It just so happened that Smelly Clark's uncle Strap took it in his head to escort his lady friend to Peoria for purposes of... Enjoying fish dinner, yes, yes, yes. What happened? On the way, an argument sprung up. And Smelly Clark's uncle... Telephone singing, telephone singing. And Smelly Clark's uncle... I said $40, that's Ruthie. $500? Uh-huh. She kind of halfway said this morning she thought Fred would probably feel like playing. Smelly Clark's uncle... How about it? Okay. Informed his lady... You have to be quiet, Willie. Hello? Oh, yes, lady. Oh, sitting here with our shoelaces and our eyelets. <laughs> uh-huh. Why, say, I think that'd be fine. Uh, just a second. Mr. and Mrs. Dumpty Doodle up the street want to know if we could stand a game of 500. Mm. Vic says glorious, Ruthie. Uh-huh. Here's the name I give you. Yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Dumpty Doodle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we'll look for you then. All right, lady. All right. Goodbye. They're coming here. Leaving right now. Better put on your shoes. Fred takes his off as soon as he gets in the door. Yeah, but you're the host. You going to be around, Buster? I have not as yet formulated. Well, if you are, we can wait about the ice cream. Otherwise, you'd better talk to the drugstore right now. Perhaps you would What do you like do with that advertisement I tore out? Oh, here. Uh-huh. Just, just, just about what I want. Huh. It's a Baltimore banker. The brim on that hat's too narrow, Dave. It is not. It is, too. I look like a peeled onion. You're no wild western cowpuncher. You just can't get away with a normal, sloppy, wide-brimmed hat. Goodness, why don't you buy a lasso? <laughs> and another thing. You said you wanted me to leave the office at 3 o'clock. That's taken off two whole hours. Is it your intention to make me try on hats for two whole hours? I want to see what Kleeberger's has got, and I want to see what Yamilton's and Silver's has got. I got their willies running from store to store. Whose fault is that? About 20 minutes of stalling around, talking to half-wit clerks, and I feel like screaming. Mm. Bryce, if you're going to be here when Mr. and Mrs. Stenbottom come, you have to comb that hair. But fierce. Try mm. along and untangle it. You don't want company to catch you looking like an eagle's man. Well, we don't have to make it 3 o'clock if you don't like leaving the office so soon. Say, 3.30 or quarter to 4. 
Why the heck can't I drop by Kleberger's on my way home from work at five? Because I have to be there with you to see you get what's right. Uh, or is that goes, my present ain't even necessary. Well, I suppose you're going to be all sulky tomorrow, like you generally are when we buy your clothes. Yes, I shall be all sulky. The clerk gets the notion you're a little on the loony side. You don't ever say anything, you just stand and act power. What is there for me to say? You do all the talking. No, but just the same. Let's try this one on, Victor. No, keep your hands away. I'll fix it. Only you let me try on my own hat. No, because you take it and jam it down on your head like a frying pan. Remember what that fool in Yamilton said last time we bought me a hat? No. He says, ask him if it's too tight, madam. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Half thought I wasn't right. Well, you certainly didn't behave right. Stood there like a statue, staring straight ahead of you while I put hats on your head. Think I buy my dog on hats like Buller buys his. How's he do? Calls up on the telephone. Says, send me a hat, size seven and a half. Oh, land. If the fellow in the store asks him what color and what shape and so on, he says, I said, send me a hat, size seven and a half. I don't give a hoot what color or what shape. I want a hat, size seven and a half. I pay between five and seven dollars. You got my order. I'll expect somebody from your store here in my office in the next ten minutes. Oh, land. The way I think I'll handle it. You will not. You'll meet me tomorrow afternoon and we'll pick out something neat and conservative with a halfway civilized size brim. Mm. Three thirty suits you? Mm. We'll meet in Petersburg. Mm. It's a date, huh? Mm. Is it a date? Okay, okay. That's what ails you. Sitting there looking like you've been eating crab apples. I realize I am only a common, ordinary American citizen. But when I get halfway through a comical story, well, I tell explain. your story, goodness. Nellie Clark's uncle ate fish in Peoria. Nellie Clark's uncle did not eat fish in Peoria. His lady friend ate fish. His lady friend did not eat fish. What's he? It just so happened that Nellie Clark's uncle Sapp took it in his head to escort his lady friend to Peoria for purposes of enjoying fish dinner. On the way, an argument sprung up. And then Uncle Strap... Yeah, Fred Lucy, slip on your shoes and straighten that library table. Informed his lady friend... Don't let him in right. Well, as good as the other episode was, this one is just as much a delight. These are two of the better early episodes of Vic and Sage that we have that have survived on audio, it's really a joy to listen to both of them. And here we got uh, Sade back in the uh, old house. She's wanting to control Vic. There's a whole big thing on Vic and Sade about Vic wanting to buy a broad-brimmed hat. Now, I have an article, a newspaper article, that I clipped from a newspaper from 1937 that indeed says broad-brimmed hats are back in style. And Vic, of course, wants one of these hats. Sade has this notion that he wants a cowboy hat or something. Vic never says he wants a cowboy hat, uh, at least until later days. He, In the, in the uh, mid-40s, he started to uh, want a cowboy hat, but... Uh, in the uh in this in this day and age which is 1938 39 something like that 
we have Vic uh, starting to desire uh, these broad-brimmed hats. And I have no idea why exactly, but Say just doesn't want him to have one. And not only that, she won't let him go and buy his own hat. She has to be there. She has to make sure he doesn't do this. Apparently, he's been trying to buy a broad-brimmed hat. You try saying that a hundred times. Several times, and either he bought them and got in trouble for them by Sade, or Sade wants to make sure she's there. And the controlling person she is, by golly, she's going to be there and make sure he doesn't have uh, the hat he wants. And uh, Vic even says in this episode that in prior instances when uh, she and him went downtown to buy a hat, that he implies this anyway, that say controlled the situation so completely that the salesperson didn't even talk to Vic. He talked, the salesperson talked to Sade and asked her to ask him how the hat felt, what, the, what he thought of the hat, etc. In other words, Vic is almost like a mannequin. Almost like a mannequin or a, a brainless person, an idiot. And uh, that's basically what Sade has turned him into. And plus, he's probably numbed from the whole situation. He doesn't want to be downtown. He doesn't want Sade buying his, buying his hat. Uh, this is another episode I've listened to several times, uh, 15 to 20 times at least. It's one of these episodes that I just keep going back to and listening to. I think this is the the most typical episode where Sade is the controlling person. There's a lot of episodes to choose from, of course. But this one... Uh, and, and, you know, also we have the Rush trying to tell the story about Smelly Clark's Uncle Strap. This is the first time we actually hear it. It may have happened before. Well, we know it happened before because Sade says she heard the story before. But this is the first time we get to hear it. And, of course, we don't get to hear the whole thing. We never do. But uh, just listening to that story is it's just funny. I, <laughs> we never do find out what happens. And it's, uh, it's a great story. Anyway, even though we don't get to know what happens... Uh, this is just a wonderful episode. God, you just wish that Sabe would just leave Vic alone. Just leave him alone. I mean, he ain't done nothing to you. But no, Sabe's got to stick her nose into everything. Oh, man. Yeah, the Sade's 30s housewife syndrome. Have you ever read the magazines, the ads aimed at housewives? I mean, this is not... Uh this is a complicated social comedy thing here because women were treated like uh, that episode with the with the lodge suggestions for uh, you know that madam should keep her face clean they really treated women as if they were like completely ignorant of any possible social conventions and had to be watched and taught you know this uh, the, the undaintiness all of these things that they would be accused of that you don't even want Oh, man. Uh, I, I feel, and especially during the hours that Vic and Sade were on, um, I would love to hear. I mean, uh, Vic and Sade, they were selling Crisco, so they weren't selling, you know, soap. 
like most of these uh, other uh, programs were. But selling a woman soap is in itself, you know, when you really think about it, almost counterintuitive. But boy, it sure um, spawned an entire genre uh, that we know as the soap opera, of course. Man, and 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 Vic indeed will never get a hat with a wider brim. I mean, he's he's there's a cowboy. Uh, I mean, as as a little kid, he must have just had a great time running around playing cowboy, and he he wants to do it again. And uh, Sade is not going to permit any of that nonsense. Uh, this episode has lots of Sade running roughshod over the boys, as we uh, mentioned uh, would be expected in episodes with Sade. Uh, Sade would hate my hair. Uh, that it, it would never have gotten anywhere near this with Sade anywhere uh, in the periphery of having anything to say about it. And, uh, you know, this is just like, uh, you know, in, uh, in later episodes we hear when Rush gets angry that he can't choose his own clothes. Um, uh, he should know better from watching episodes like this. If his grown dad can't pick his own hat, uh, he's not picking his back-to-school clothes ever. Uh, he, he better be. He may be several years out of the house before, uh, and he, he may get a wife who does the same thing. I mean, that was one of the wifely feminine quote-unquote duties to see that her man look respectable in some households and social uh, environments and women were not these unempowered that in the house you're you're hearing uh pre-women's lib the power of the woman in the household that uh that is almost ignored when they talk about men running things i think there were more men like vic and rush than there were uh, these louts in uh, wife beater t-shirts uh, running the home ruthlessly in any case and and and, and oh I, I almost forgot there was that uncle strap tail again oh man am i psychic another one of my favorite episodes this is all by coincidence uh, is the 1939 episode sades new Luggage. Now, sir, it's late afternoon as we approach the small house, halfway up in the next block now. And here, mounting the back porch steps, we find Mr. Victor Gook and his son, Mr. Rush Gook. The gentlemen are just this moment returned home from activities at the kitchenware plant in Tatman's vacant lot. Their conversation is brisk and cheerful. Listen. They come about as close to being a fight as anything I've ever seen in my life. Leroy Snow referred to Milton Welch as a half-wit. Milton referred to Leroy as a cheapskate. Leroy doubled up his fist. Milton Welch removed his hat and overcoat. In that case, I suggest you open the door. Tom's been away someplace and come home again. How do you deduce that, Inspector Gluck? Here's your rubbers with the sole still wet. In that case, I suggest you open the door. Yeah, it sure looked like it was going to be a battle. Milton Welch removed his hat and overcoat. Leroy Snow removed his hat and overcoat. Leroy says, Here, Rooster, kindly hold my rats while I teach this founder a lesson. Milton says, Here, Bluetooth, take care of my outer clothing. Well, I give this scoundrel a thrash and he won't soon forget. In that case, I suggest you close the door. Oh, but then they both begin to stop. Right. Hi, Jai, how it go? You all by yourself? No, I got a fella with me. Rush Cook or some name like that. I'm upstairs. Be right down. Precede me to the living room, Stone Bruce. We look over the pile of important letters, telegrams, trans-oceanic cables that arrived during our absence. Before they got through, they had almost all their clothes off. I don't follow your train of thought. It's still talking about Leroy Snow and Milton Welch. Oh. 
Neither one of them actually wanted to fight, B. They were both stalling for time. Leroy removed his hat and overcoat. Milton removed his hat and overcoat. Leroy removed his necktie. Milton removed his necktie. Leroy removed his shirt. Milton removed his shirt. <laughs> Leroy removed his shoes. Milton removed his shoes. Leroy removed... take place over Chapman's vacant lot? Yeah. <laughs> been a trifle chilly for the belligerent. It was. They both started hey. shiver. What did we hear? Where? Sitting in front of the airport. Hmm. Perhaps we have a guest. Hey, traveling. Can you on the floor? Who's okay? Mine. Perhaps it's hers. Purchased, I imagine, in anticipation of a trip to Carberry next month. He's been talking about a new suitcase. Said our old one's so scuffed and shabby. Ain't it a beauty? Woman, if you've been spending my hard-earned money on foolish vanities by choice... Don't interfere with the tellers. It's brand new and the lovely leather is easy to scratch. <laughs> if my man had a new football, she'd be afraid to get scratched. That's ladies for you. How do you like that for handsome? Very nice indeed. You couldn't I... guess in 30,000 squillion years where it comes from. Moore's luggage shop. No. Here's a label that says Moore's Oh, luggage. it may have come from there. I guess it did come from there. Well, I said Moore's luggage shop and you said See, no. It's a gift. Huh? From Mr. and Miss Donahue. What? I'll go in a way gift. Sweetest thing that ever was. She brought it over about an hour ago, and I haven't been able to get my breath since. The idea, I suppose. It's a one. It's expensive. If it didn't cost eighteen, nineteen, twenty dollars, I'm not three feet high. I've been Here, let me show you. Did old man Donahue actually break down? These latches, where you clasp it together, is absolutely the latest thing. I'll demonstrate how they work. I know how they work. There's nothing new about those. Certainly a lot newer than the ones on that big old squashed-in suitcase of ours. I've been taking on trains ever since I married to where the conductor tittered. I doubt if the conductor's tittered every occasion. See how they work? I understand how they work. This little business comes in around to here. And then you pull down on this thing, my doodle. Your traveling bag is closed to where it can't come open. And there's even a lock and key goes with it. The key's inside on the string. Notice the color. I know It's a very, very, very latest, latest tan. Uh-huh. All the stylish travelers in Peoria and Decatur got the leases with this shade of tan. Probably. No joking, I haven't been able to get my breath this last hour. It was such an enormous big surprise, see? I'd like to investigate inside. Uh, tell me what you can do, Rush. Out on top of the buffet, there's a letter from Aunt Beth. Go get it. The letter from Beth comes afternoon. <laughs> all about how excited they are, me coming and all. Do you realize I leave for Carberry in less than two weeks? The time is, George. Well, I can do like a say, Rush. It's on top of the buffet. Huh? Yes, sir. Less than two weeks. I can't hardly realize it. Well, what puzzles me is this sudden surge of generosity on the part of Pa and Ma Donahue. The traveling bags are going away, Gip. Yeah, but you're only going to be gone eight or nine days. What do you mean? If I strolled over to East Oakland Avenue to buy a cigar, I wouldn't expect my friends to shower me with presents to console me during my long journey. I don't You've got it all twisted around. It's them that's going away, the Donahue's. They're moving the first of the month. This traveling bag is a token of love and appreciation for me being a neighbor they've been fond of all these years. Oh, so that's the way of it. That's the way of it. And did you ever hear of anything sweeter in your life? My Donahue's always had a heart like a tub of jelly. I know. I always liked those. Nineteen twenty dollars is must have cost, at least. And you appreciate how they are with their pennies. Why? Both of them squeeze their nickel silly eagle squawk. I know, as sure as I'm standing here. What do you want? Here's Aunt Bess's letter off in the buffet. Well, you take it out of the envelope. Yes, sir, eighteen, nineteen, twenty dollars <laughs> This is the case of the cart before the horse. What? Well, generally it's the people that go away that receive the going away gifts. Here, Donahue's are the ones that's going away and they're giving the going away gifts. I know it. I know it. Want me to read this out loud? Yeah. All about how excited they are me coming to Carberry. Right. 
Here's Sister in law. So you I realize, wait. don't you, I'm leaving in less than two weeks? I hadn't stopped to think about it before. That's right, though. Let's see, what's the date? Today's Wednesday. Must really, be. only about ten days. I found it up on the calendar this morning. Dear sister in law. Oh, the best is in the stew. <laughs> oh, me coming and all. I bet she's already got nine cakes baked. When that girl gets ready to entertain company, she almost kills herself. Well, listen to what she says. Read, Rush. Dear sister in law, thought I would write and see how you are feeling. We are fine, and Walter's kneecap has let up considerable on the twinges. How is Victor? He's I got think... a lot to say about you further on. So? A little jokes about uh, when you come to Carberry, mate. I bet Victor takes the pretty girls to the ice cream parlor and treats them to ice cream for them. <laughs> Dear sister, no. Oh, and uh, you better have Victor arrested and put in jail while you're gone, mate. Husbands with their wives out of town are liable to take in the moving picture show every single evening. <laughs> oh, she's a corker, that bitch. Yeah, I bet I don't sleep nine minutes all the time I'm in Carberry. I bet we lay in bed and talk all night long. Uh, <laughs> Read, right? Dear Sister and all. Don't but... go over the same thing again and again. You don't give me a chance? Skip down. Skip down. How is Victor? Huh? How is Victor? How is Victor? Skip down to how is Victor. Oh, <laughs> for a minute Victor, there. Victor, I bet that girl's a wreck. The prospect of entertaining company simply makes a bundle of nerves out of her. Mm. How is Victor? She's always been that way, Beth. Always. Mm. How is Victor? Now, when they had that preacher's convention in Carberry and Beth boarded three of them for a week, she got herself into such a state, Walter had to send for the doctor. Huh. How is Victor? Huh? How is Victor? Fresh what? Oh! <laughs> Thought for a minute you'd gone off your rocker. Three. How is Victor? I suppose he's working hard in his office as usual. He will certainly miss you when you come to visit us. Say, mate, can't he and Rush run up... He wants you and Willie to run up the day before I leave for home. Of a Saturday, see. You could hop on the train Saturday morning, get to Carberry in the early evening, and have all night and a good part of Sunday to see the folks. Oh, I thought we'd already decided that. Yeah, we had. How is Victor? Oh, but this traveling bag, though. Won't I cut a dash on the Illinois Central? Darn old conductor won't titter at my miserable little old crushed in valise this trip. Oh. <laughs> How is Victor? Did you ever hear of anything so sweet as this, Donna? Uh-uh. Economical and careful with their pennies as they are, they spent eighteen, nineteen, twenty dollars to buy me an extensive present to show how much they like me and what a dandy neighbor they think I've been all these years. Huh? Is that sweet? Mm-hmm. Ain't that sweet? Mm-hmm. Know what happened when she walked in here and handed me the traveling bag and explained what it was for? Yeah. We cried. Yeah? Both of us. Actually, Vic, I just... Somebody in the kitchen. Hmm? Somebody in the kitchen. Oh, that's my grocery boy. I want to see him. He's got a ball and out coming. Do you I'll want... be back in a second. Don't either one of you go away. I got a lot more things to tell you. Okay. And don't interfere with that traveling bag. A lovely leather. It's lovely to get scratched. Well, well, Bob's going to Carberry. Yeah, Bob's going to Carberry. Say never gets to go anywhere. So when she gets to go somewhere, she gets excited. And she's excited in this episode. Because uh, she's going to Carberry in two weeks. In two weeks. And she got a brand new suitcase uh, from her friends next door who were moving away. And they gave her a suitcase. So go figure. Apparently, said suitcases are in really bad disrepair. So much so that the Donahues have to give her a suitcase. Because Vic won't buy her one. He's too busy buying... Uh, Lodge stuff for 50 bucks or whatever. But Sage's excited. 
And this suitcase is only like a $5 suitcase or $10 suitcase, whatever. But uh, she thinks it's the greatest thing in the world because, I mean, when when do you remember Vic ever buying her anything? <laughs> he just doesn't. As I said before numerous times, uh, there's very little love between these two people. They do love each other. There's no doubt about it. The romance is, where is it? It's gone. It's not, I don't even know if it was ever there. I can see Vic being romantic in his little way, maybe, but, uh, <laughs> and say, giggling, <laughs> but how long did that last? Long enough for her to say, I do, and, uh, that was the end of that, uh, we even wonder if they procreate. Well, I guess some of you wonder that. I, I may or may not wonder, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, but no, I mean, uh, Rush and Russell are not their children. Anyway, I'm kind of getting off subject. But I can do that. It's my show. I can do whatever I want. This is a This is a great episode. The best thing about the episode, in my opinion, is listen to Rush try to read this letter from Aunt Bess that nobody really cares about. Even Say doesn't care about it. She doesn't want to listen to the letter. She just wants to force the boys, the men, to listen to the letter. Vic, listen, listen. She doesn't say that, but she might as well say it. And she forces Rush to read this stupid letter, which she doesn't let him read. She keeps interrupting him. But listening to him try to read the letter is gold. Comedic gold. One of my favorite things to listen to on Vic and Say is Rush trying (laughs) to read this letter, especially when he says, you don't give me a chance. She said, read the letter. He said, you don't give me a chance. You don't give me a chance. Just the way he says that mm-hmm. makes me laugh. Just when I think about it, sometimes I'll be at the store doing something, and I'll think of, of uh, Rush saying, you don't give me a chance. And she doesn't. There's a lot of good things about this episode. Lots of stuff. Uh... Another thing that's important in this episode is this is not a regular piece of luggage. This is an overnight bag. This is a small bag. You'd think it's probably not big enough to have all of her clothes in there that she needs for her trip to Carberry. You know, and you just shake your head because Vic won't buy her what she needs. I mean, come on. Vic probably needs a suitcase to go. Go buy a suitcase, Vic. Quit buying a cannons and scepters and go buy some luggage for Sade and yourself. And quit being a nickel nurser, as Sade would say. Again, one of my favorite episodes. So that's three we've heard, and they've all been in my top probably 15 episodes. How about you, PQ?
Yeah, I don't know. I, I I see Vic as being allowed to like bully his way into buying all the lodge junk. But if he bought anything for the household without consulting her about what color and what size and what style, uh, it would be a losing battle. I don't know how much of the... I think she runs the household money. And I'm not sure where he gets or how he gets the power. Because that's the one thing Vic seems to be able to do is waste scads of money on uh, books on parade technique and uh, scepters and um, robes and all that uh, lodge stuff but yeah the first thing she mentions it's expensive you go back that's the first thing out of Sade's mouth when she begins talking about the virtues of this gift which uh, between you and me I think uh, Mr. Donahue, working for the railroad, has some connections with the Lost and Found Department, and uh, they get a lot of cast-off stuff, and they had all this crap that they weren't going to move, and uh, between me and you, I don't think the Donahues go anywhere, but we don't get to live out that storyline if it was one. Uh, But the Donahues, uh, Mr. Donahue continues to take naps on the Davenport in uh, the living room of the small house halfway up in the next block, uh, well into the next decade, uh, (laughs) indeed. Uh, Oh, and, and the letter from Bess, although this is not, Jimbo didn't point it out, so I get to. I mean, we get to hear lots of letters from Bess, but this one actually sounds interesting. It has content. It isn't the same letter over and over almost word for word that we uh, work our way into as we hear episodes into the 40s. Uh, no, this is the... I, I, I wanted to hear more. I bet best saying something other than, you know, uh, Walter's kneecap letting up on the twinges some. Man. And, and cakes baked, uh, it's, they don't last two weeks, do they? Nobody's pre-baking cakes for somebody coming to... Oh, man. And, and yeah, it's it's Sage's turn to be uh, enthusiastic. And boy, she uh, she sure is in this episode. Um, and uh, yeah, that's uh, a, a swell episode, except for maybe audio quality. But the cleanup on that's pretty good. Uh, I, 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 fine. I, fine. Fine. Here's a later episode from Series 2 entitled... Miss Harris and Dwight 26er are engaged. So let's take a listen. Well, sir, it's late afternoon as our scene opens now. And here in the living room of the small house, halfway up in the next block, we find Mrs. Victor Gook and her son, Mr. Rush Gook. Sade is seated on the Davenport with a lap full of gentlemen's socks, while young Rush, who is newly arrived home, stands beside the library table. Mother and son are conversing animatedly. Listen. Bluetooth Johnson and Smelly Clark both told me, and they sounded like they knew what they were talking about. Irving, the grocery boy, said he'd heard the rumor three different places. <laughs> I always thought this romance business between Miss Harris and Dwight 26er was only in Uncle Fletcher's imagination. It might still be. <laughs> Miss Harris married to Mr. 26er. A person would never have imagined any such a thing. But far as I'm concerned, it'd be nice. Here's Mr. 26er, a widower with married daughters in Dismal Seepage, Ohio. He's kind of a peculiar fellow, but he's a nice fellow. And a dandy, conscientious provider, I'll bet. 
And here's Miss Harris, a widow and lonesome and fond of company. Pleasure, I hope to home. I was invited out sledding, but I don't think I'll go. Here's Gov. Wonder if he's heard the rumor. Hi. I brought home some friends with me. I want you to meet Miss Williamson, Miss O'Connor, Miss Davenport, and Miss Campbell. <laughs> Gov is in good humor. Yeah. Miss Williamson, Miss O'Connor, Miss Davenport, and Miss Campbell and myself are getting married later on this afternoon. Well, hello, people. Hi. I would like to present these four beautiful young ladies. Why, where did they go? I expect they hid under the buffet. Oh, why, of course they did. They're so shy. They really, really mean it, girl. We heard a rumor. I heard a rumor. What rumor did you hear? Mrs. Harris, across the alley, is shortly to marry Dwight 26 Cliff. We, we heard, heard that rumor. rumor. Hang up my hat and overcoat, sir. I refuse to bandy words with inconsequential homunculi. That's me, all right. If I had a watermelon, I'd eat the insides and use the outside for a sled and slide down Roosevelt Hill on my stomach. Oh, when did you hear about Miss Harris and Dwight 26, sir? Just now. Who told you? Charlie Razor's come. We walked home together. Well, where did he hear? He didn't say. Do you believe it? I have no strong reason to doubt it. No, that's right. Rush and I were just talking about it, and I was saying it sounds ridiculous until a person thinks about it a second. Oh, both Miss Harris and Dwight are cheerful, sensible, healthy, amiable, and reasonable. They're free and congenial and gregarious and eligible to get married, and there's no reason in the world why they shouldn't. Of course, Mr. 26 is an eccentric fellow. Did you hang my hat and overcoat neatly in the hallway? Sure. And what was your question? I didn't ask any question. Just made the observation that Mr. 26 is an eccentric fellow. We are all eccentric fellows. Yeah, to a degree, but... Mr. 26 always has his mouth full of shingle nails. He wears his shoes on the wrong feet. Puts his cap on backwards. I agree with you. Everybody's more or less eccentric, but you hey, take a guy that does... Cheers, Uncle Fletcher. In the living room, are they? I had a notion he'd be along. It's surprising he didn't arrive sooner. Howdy, hi, Uncle Fletcher. I'm happy to find you at home. Watch him rub it in now. He's been telling us all along there was romance between Miss Harris and Mr. 26 sir, and all we done was titter and make fun. <laughs> He'll make us crawl on our stomach and eat crow. Oh, just at five cents, he will. Mighty pretty day, Sadie Honey. I don't know when we've enjoyed such glorious weather in this section of December. Well, hello. Hello, Uncle Fletcher. You two scallywags on deck, are we? Yes. Rush, honey, at any other time, I'd be more than happy to see you. You know that without me telling you, so I'm satisfied in advance your feelings won't be injured when I ask you if you wouldn't mind stepping down cellar for the next 10 to 15 minutes. I have a matter of the greatest importance to communicate to your papa and mom. A matter which is not suitable for the ears of tiny children. Here, you may take my corduroy cap and back and on, lay them on the kitchen table. I don't think I need to go down cellar, Uncle Fletcher. I think I already know what's on your mind. He won't mind going down cellar a few minutes, will he, Sadie, honey, and leaving the grown-ups with their adult conversation? He knows about Miss Harris and Dwight 26 What? Rush has heard that Miss Harris and Dwight 26 are engaged to be married. He has? Yes, and so have we. Oh, it's all over town, Uncle Fletcher. The human race cannot refrain from gathering. No. And they never could from the beginning of time. I read someplace... Who has circulated these foul rumors? What nitwit scoundrel is it that has so little control over common decency? Oh, ish. Foul rumors. Common decency. What's wrong with Miss Harris and Mr. 26 for getting married? We think it's fine. It is fine. What you complaining about, then? I wanted to spread the news. That's what I thought you were complaining about. You're just upset because we heard the news elsewhere. I was the half-witted engineer this marriage. I was the fathead numbskull that introduced the loving couple. 
Sadie, I told you all along there was romance in the stew pan. I told you all along, Florence Harris, faint heart was succumbing to the charming blandishments of Dwight 26 I appreciate you did, Uncle Fletcher. Sure I did. And what did you do? You scoffed and chuckled and snorted. You snickered and choked and derided. You grinned and tittered and guffawed. Oh, Hish, maybe not quite that bad. But I admit I didn't believe... Rush, go down south. Oh, no, Uncle Fletcher. Miss Harris and Dwight will be here in a minute. Yeah? They're waltzing over on happy feet. Oh, it'd be grand seeing them. They want to tell you people in person the joyous news. They can. We won't let on. You are still above stairs, are they, Rush, honey? Oh, don't make me go down cellar, Uncle Fletcher. He's right, Uncle Fletcher. We won't let on. Hi, Miss Ivy, lady. Are you in the living room? Here are our guests. Mm. Hi, Miss Ivy. Miss Harris and Dwight? Well, Miss Harris, anyway. Good afternoon, Mrs. Luke. Dwight also. Mm-hmm. Dwight is here? Yeah. I hope we're not swimming, Mrs. Luke. Has he got his mouth full of shingle ale? <laughs> sure, yes. I bet his wife puts a stop to that. I bet she don't. I will gladly bet you five silver dollars Dwight 26er keeps his mouth full of shingle nails as long as he chooses to keep his mouth full of shingle nails. Mr. Mr. Hook and Rush, I am happy to find you at home. Hello, oh, Mr. 26er. Oh, Dwight. Oh, Mrs. Harris. Oh, I wonder what you think of us bursting right in without ringing or knocking or anything else. Hello, Hello Mrs. Harris. Bless you, old man. You're not saying a word. Oh, I'm not saying a word, Dwight. Not a word. Good afternoon, Miss Harris. <laughs> Good afternoon, Mr. Ross. Your, your name is Mrs. Harris, I expect. Oh, oh, Mr. Rush, what on earth can you be talking about? <laughs> hey, what is this? Some kind of a conspiracy? Mrs. Cook. Mr. Cook and Rush, you will no doubt be astonished at the announcement of what I'm about to make. He's got his mouth full of shingle nails. Yes. I don't suppose you have been altogether oblivious of certain attentions I have paid to your charming neighbor during the past several months. I'm like some... You've got your mouth full of shingle nails. They can't understand what you're saying. I feel more comfortable when my mouth is full of shingle nails. See, he calls her Florence. Oh, but the people can't understand what you're saying, Dwight. See, she calls him Dwight. Uh-huh. Well, to continue with what I was saying, Take Mr. the shingle nails out of your mouth, Dwight. Well, oh, anything you say, Florence. Are you going to do it? Sure he's going to do it. She told him to take the shingle nails out of his mouth, and he's actually going to do it. Well, of course I'm going to do it. Hey, George, this is unbelievable. You owe me five silver dollars, Uncle Fletcher. This is unbelievable, I say. <laughs> there. Now speak your piece, Dwight. I'm happy to, Florence, dear. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Cook and Rush, you will no doubt be astonished at the announcement of which I'm about to make. You told him to take the shingle nails out of his mouth if he did it. I don't suppose that you have been altogether oblivious to certain attentions which I have paid to your charming neighbor during the past several months. I myself am an undeserving wretch, but I feel that I have a deep appreciation for the rare and the beautiful things. Miss Harris, or Florence, as she now permits me to call her, has been charitable enough to look upon my miserable suit with flavor. And I am the happiest fan on earth. Oh, well, congratulations. My stars, <sighs> yes. I, I realize this is a surprise to you. What? 
I, I realized this is a surprise to you. Dwight and I hadn't really made up our minds until a few days ago. Miss Harris has got her mouth full of shingle nails. Yes, I've got my mouth full of shingle nails. Hey, what's going on here? <laughs> Florence has got her mouth full of shingle nails. No. Yes, yeah. Happened to Florence. Yes, why? Listen to that. Uh-huh. Just listen to that. Yeah. Oh, Florence. I'm going to do my best to make you very, very happy. I know you are, right? We will be just like two lovers in a tree. Exactly like two lovers in a tree, right? There is romance. Yes. There, by George's real romance. <laughs> Which concludes another brief visit at the small house halfway up the next block. And there you have that. Uh, P.Q. wanted to explore one of these later episodes and so I'm giving him the opportunity to do so because he's my friend only it's the only reason why because I'm not a big fan of these later episodes as anybody who follows my blogs knows I just don't like anything about these episodes uh, yes Rush comes back from the Navy and uh, uh, yes, these are Paul Reimer written episodes, and yes, Uncle Fletcher's on all of them, and uh, uh, yes, we get to explore these new characters uh, that nobody's ever heard of before, and mostly in these later episodes, but I don't like any of them, really. Now, I must say that out of all of the episodes in Series 2, this is probably the best one. It's well acted. There's only two peripheral characters that show up. The White 26er, I can handle real easily. It seems to be portrayed the way I would imagine it would be portrayed. Now, Miss Harris is a totally different story. She, That's not the way I imagine Miss Harris at all. She's a big, beefy woman uh, that I see in my head. She's a, uh, She runs a boarding house for men. She's got four or five men that live over there, so she's got to be semi-tough. Also, she's a gardener. She's kind of, uh, she's got to be beefy. She's got to be. So, um, this little dainty woman we hear here is not the way I picture Miss Harris, the boarding house lady. But that's neither here nor there. That's my imagination. This episode here went pretty well, I I must say. I would not mind uh, listening to this episode now and again, as I do. I mean, but this is very rare. All the rest of the episodes in Series 2 and Series 3, I don't really care for. Especially Series 3, the 30-minute... 30 minutes shows. But anyway, 
I tell you what, I'll just stop right there and let PQ, who really likes these episodes, I'll let him talk about this episode. Really likes is, uh, I would say that is an exaggeration. However, uh, in comparison with almost anything else of its kind, yes, it isn't the classic Vic and Say, although it, it, the, it starts in the old format, and it does fairly well. I mean, they're a little stiff. They've been away a while, and uh, it, perhaps it's being produced. Yeah, they would have to be. It's being produced in a different studio. I think the old episodes were done in the same studio for years and years, and it, it's a changeover anyhow. Uh, but that they, it's this episode, I think, might be better than some of the older ones that have survived. I mean, it's just, oh boy, it, it's just, well, strike one against it is when, uh, I, I, I think the Uncle Fletcher characterization is too not senile, demented. When he admits, I wanted to spread the news myself, uh... It's already like this isn't my Uncle Fletcher. Uh, he would just like be obstinate, change the subject, do any number of things. But fessing up, uh, no, that's just, that that is a definite. But it, by the time Dwight Twenty Sixler takes the nails out of his mouth and makes that speech, we have crossed over into uh, <clears throat> cover the little kitty's ears effing surreal time i mean that is just one of the uh, and then she's got man you can almost picture the two of them making out and and, and exchanging shingle nails in, in bizarre uh french kisses of some sort uh yeah that i i and I I still but one of the, I'm I'm not going to say in the next one but in the next few we're uh, well I may uh, have to take a solo look at a half hour episode uh, at uh, what was it Dream Shampoo or something Fitch Shampoo something along the lines of that is the sponsor and yeah they have some real grown spots but uh you put them up against most sitcoms of their era and uh, i i see what uh, paul reimer was trying to do he'd lost his spot as a soap opera not only that but uh just as today daytime uh, programming pays x amount of dollars when you write it and uh evening primetime programming if you get a hit show pays a different amount i think uh paul reimer was trying to blend his absurdity and strangeness and still somehow be commercial and maybe in ways it failed because obviously i mean a lot of uh I am. I probably, and I don't love them. I just feel they deserve more attention. Uh, out of all of the Vic and Sade fans that I know, I'm probably like them better than any of them. Uh, yeah. Oh, fun times. Fun times. Well, BQ and I are real happy that you took your time to listen to us blab on about uh, Vic and Sade, one of our favorite things. We appreciate you taking the time. And we hope you'll join us for show number four, which should be out in, you know, 10, 12, 14 days, whatever. We don't, we're not keeping a regular schedule here. We're just doing one uh, every couple of weeks or so. 
So keep an eye out. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Say goodbye, PQ. Uh, goodbye to everybody. And uh, I just, it is so great to be able to share. Uh, it's such an obscure and wonderful thing as Vic and Sade with everyone. And uh, uh, leave your comments on the Unsug page or, uh, you know, be in touch with us. If you want to, if you have comments to add to this, it would be appreciated. And Jimbo didn't say it, but I'll tell you. If you go over to vicandsade.blog, blogspot.com uh you're you're in for a wacky well actually a crazy world of vic and sade and and, and you should order because uh, it, it is encyclopedic and uh, yep till the next time have lots of fun oh that was just great and uh, memories and yep yeah, I, I i knew even less than i know now about vic and sade but I sure love that show. And uh, I hope I didn't overdo it this time, just compressing so much Vic and Sade. What do we have about an hour and a half of Vic and Sade to open this up? And we've got Shambles Constant without much further ado. An old Shambles show from the early days, his early times here on the Overnight Scape Underground. Uh, this particular recording is from the 1st of September, 2012, uh, basically 11 years ago. The title of the show is Like Phineas Gage. And he used to, uh, not so much anymore, but he used to have his daughter and his family on the show. And she sort of, well, this is like, must be really retro, but it's archival. It's great. And it's definitely an example of some of the older shambles that you can find in the Overnightscape Underground archive. Um, without further ado, I mean, you've heard enough of me uh, just driveling along and talking with Jimbo on that last show. So uh, let's let's just go for it. Hello. Hi, Hello, Barney. It's your little, little kid, Jackie Seeger, with my video diary. So, it seems a lot to me that it's so nice. So, good, so good luck, Mommy. Hello, Mommy. I just want to say, if you date any girls, good luck, Mommy. Good luck, Mommy.
shoulder. What if the world's Can't you see? I'm no good without you. Hello. Time for the Shamble Show. Uh, it's uh, about 10 p.m. on the night of Tuesday, August 28th of 2012. I just left Barnes & Noble, and it's uh, such a gorgeous night. I didn't want to, uh, didn't quite want to leave and go back home yet. My wife texted me and said that they're they're fine. Daughter uh, just went to bed, so you know everything's fine. Kid went to bed. Um, wife probably up watching TV or something, maybe reading. And uh, that is one crazy sky, man. I can't see any stars. Well. Okay, if I look really close, I can see a couple of stars up there, but most of the sky is like an ink black. Um, I'm in the parking lot here of Barnes & Noble. Uh, there's also a Schnucks, a Chuck E. Cheese, H&R Block, Murray Shoes. There's a haircut place, or at least there was. Is it still over there? I can't tell if it's still there or not. Might be where the UPS store is now. But the moon is just almost full. And there are these, like, patchy clouds around it. With some black in between those clouds, which look like a couple of Rorschach ink blots. And that's uh, basically what the sky looks like right now. Oh my gosh. My daughter has a name for the moon. She calls it Mooney. Kind of nice. Uh, so, the temperature is... Oh, it's got to be about 75 degrees out here. Nice and cool. I kind of like it. I liked the way I recorded the last episode. Um, the one for last week. So I thought I'd do something similar this week. Only, at least for now, I'm on foot. Just kind of wandering. Kind of walk around the parking lot a little bit. That's, that's allowed, isn't it? Carrying a book. These days I really just don't feel comfortable unless I'm carrying a book of some kind. And the book I'm reading right now is Lightning by Dean Koontz. Uh, I'd never read it before. Actually, I think I'd started it at one point, because like, the first couple of chapters were familiar. And then after that, I kind of lost the track a little bit. But I'm almost halfway through that one, and uh, there's, there's some uh, time travel in, involved. But it's one of those where you barely realize that's what's going on for the first like 100 pages or so. Um, and only now am I getting more into like the nature of the time travel and a little bit of what the future world is like 
that the time traveler came from. And uh, so, judging by the almost half of the book I've read right now, I definitely recommend it. The Lightning, Dean Koontz. So, just sort of strolling. I'm walking toward Olive Garden. So we could walk around Olive Garden. Oh, just last like last week, uh, I start recording and talking. Throat gets kind of dry, and I feel like uh, feel thirsty. So let's get a drink in a little bit. Oh, no. oh the nightlife of Bloomington, Illinois. And this is uh, Shamble Show episode sixty. So. If uh, I get this one out before the end of August, this will be a five-episode month, which is fine. I'm really kind of digging the the current uh, groove that I've got going for these. I'm not rushing them out. I'm just kind of leisurely recording them, putting them together, and then letting them sit for a couple days and then give it a listen and then release it. Right now I'm comfortable with that. Maybe maybe down the road, a few weeks, a few months, I might get back to recording like a couple shows a week, three shows a week, but for now I'm really I'm I'm liking this, this weekly thing. And I also kinda like recording it in one big clump, you know. Um I mean there's something to be said for the recording like kind of piecemeal you know here and there like a few minutes at a time but these longer recordings I mean you can just really you can just really dive in and just uh, explore oh the garden smells good it's still open when did it close I don't think I've ever gone there that this late my wife and I went here for uh, our anniversary couple weeks ago. Second year in a row we've done that. And the first year we did this was when I recorded my very first uh, Anybody's Guest episode. For the safety of our guests and employees, re-entry after closing will be prohibited. Thank you. Sunday through Thursday, 10 p.m. So yeah, they just closed. And, uh, really nice night. It's hard to believe the summer is over. I, uh, I've missed the last couple of Overnightscape Centrals. I haven't been contributing. Um, but the most recent one was, um, the end of summer. Like, or closed summer, summer's end, something like that. I still have yet to listen to that one, but, um, looking forward to it when I do. I also missed the writing one. I, I didn't contribute on that one, which uh, may seem a little weird because writing is one of my uh, big themes. <laughs> you know, that's one of the, the things I've really always kind of enjoyed doing. But uh, I kind of felt like I didn't have much to say at that point in time about writing. There was a show, a central about uh, literature, 
a few months back. And when I contributed to that one, I talked a lot about reading and about writing. So, in a way, I kind of felt like I pretty much said what I wanted to say at the moment. So, but, uh, you know, I want to keep releasing, or releasing, keep contributing to Central. Great show. If you haven't heard it, definitely uh, seek out Overnightscape Central. It's basically just a series of hosts on the OnSug channel, OnSug.com, or, yeah, ONSUG.com, and uh, uh, PQ River gives us a theme every week and says, okay, this is what you're talking about, uh, or if you want to talk about something just tangentially related or not related at all, go right ahead. Um, you know, he's pretty lenient on that, and you would just record... Um, you know, yourself talking for however long you want, basically. I mean, we've had segments that are like 30 seconds long. We've had segments that are over an hour long. You know, and uh, pretty much any length in between. And put it on MP3 file, or I think he can... I think he said that he can deal with uh, other formats, too. And then uh, just email it to him, to PQ River. Um... What is that? kpqr.torc at gmail.com See, but now I've memorized it because uh, I hear him say it every week. <laughs> and also on some of the uh, bug out episodes, too, that he does. So, this coming episode of Central is about reality shifts. Real or imagined. And I've definitely got something to say on that. It's now that, unlike writing, is something that's uh, been in my head a lot recently. Um, and I'll go into it with more detail because, uh, you know, I was going to put it in a shamble show, actually, but uh, since this topic came up kind of at the right time, I will talk about it on Central. Okay, I've walked all the way around Olive Garden, back to the parking lot, and I'm pretty much where I started from at Barnes. So, I'm going to walk back around behind the building. I'm going just strolling by my van, still carrying my Dean Koontz book. But, this whole reality thing. I'll just, I'll just say briefly here, and then I'll go into it with more detail when I contribute to the episode on Central. Um, I'm having this feeling off and on that uh, I'm not really experiencing reality I feel disconnected from reality and I don't know if it's to the point like it's I feel like there's a conspiracy or something but it just it feels like it's something just within me I just I feel disconnected like I kind of feel like instead of being inside my body I'm just operating my body by remote control from, you know, a far-off um, location. So, um, yeah, I better stop there, or else I'm just going to go through the whole thing and then not get a chance to uh, put it on the central episodes, blah, 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 blah. Beautiful night.
Okay, now I'm. I don't know if it's because I've. I've moved, but now the moon. It's no longer in those weird patchy clouds and the Rorschach plots. Uh, it's just uh, at the forefront of a black sky. If you look really close, you can see a couple of stars, but they're not really out right now. I'm walking alongside the Veterans Parkway. Several cars go by. Applebee's is directly across the parkway from me. I like Applebee's. I've been there for a while. Should probably check that out sometime again. So I don't know. I... Damn, I'm so thirsty, man. I'm approaching. There's a bank. I'm currently in the uh, the, the bank parking lot, the U.S. Bank. Across the street, this other street, side street, is uh, Cub Foods and Party City, which is closed. Uh, there's a Japanese place called Kobe, 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 which is closed. Uh, there's some other stores over there too. There's like a, a tanning place over there. I haven't really recorded walking around this area for a while. Well, ever. <laughs> Always good to get uh, fresh perspectives, you know, find different locations. Now, I think Frank Edward Nora, when he does his show, you know, he tends to record, like, the Port Authority bus terminal and, you know, uh, you know, just on the bus and just wandering here and there. And, you know, it's, it's uh, New York City and... Uh, um, you know, New Jersey and all around that area where he records from time to time. I, I think for for Frank, there are enough there's enough variety that maybe he doesn't have to seek out um, new locations for as often. But this is Bloomington, Illinois. It's not it's not a, it's not a small town, but it's not huge either. I mean, it's a college town. Um, it's got Illinois State, got Illinois Wesleyan, um, Heartland's here. There's a Lincoln College, it's kind of a small one. ISU and Wesleyan are the two ma- major ones in town. But, yeah, uh, it's not a huge, you know, thriving sprawling metropolis is what I'm trying to say and so it's good to be for me to find different places to go and record and this kind of gets my thoughts percolating in different ways you know sometimes I'm on foot sometimes I'm driving the mall is uh, across the parkway too closed of course Gosh. There's somebody walking through the parking lot over at the mall. Stopped for a minute and then started walking again. 
Wouldn't it be cool if that person was also recording uh, his own uh, internet show and was like, "Where can I, where can I upload this? I want this on the internet." And I'd be like, "Well, let me tell you. As a matter of fact, I knew." <laughs> uh, far as I know, I'm the only one in town. Well, maybe even Central Illinois, for all I know, who's doing a show quite like this. I think the closest to me is uh, Bob Lamette, who does the morning commute every week. And he's in kind of the St. Louis area. But he's, he's familiar with this area. Zip around there. That's right. Run me over. Sure. Whatever. Whatever, sir. <laughs> Man. Speck on my glasses. It's freaking drive me crazy. It's the point when that happens that I just cannot deal with it. I just have to get it off of there. I have those weird little uh, compulsions sometimes today this woman suddenly popped into my head that used to um, work where I work like oh probably about five or six years ago now maybe even longer ago than that and I knew that she used to do some of the work that I do now and I couldn't think of her name and it was driving me freaking bonkers I'm like, what in the hell was her name? And I thought about it and thought about it, and I kind of looked through some uh, electronic files that we have, you know, from back around that time to see if her name would magically pop up. And it took me hours to remember it. And I'm like, you know, I'm working, and I'm thinking, who? And finally I was like, was Angie something? You know, I, I toyed with, like, Stacy or Michelle... No, those, those weren't right. Finally, Angie, and then I, and then her last name popped into my head. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I still can't remember what she looked like, but yeah, it was Angie, W. We'll just say her last initial. Okay, I've walked around for a while now. I think I need a beverage. Oh, Got the book in the van. <coughs> oh. Getting a little froggy in my throat. <clears throat> oh, this, beca- this could become a regular thing. One weekday evening a week. Come to Barnes & Noble. Wander around. Read. Do the whole thing. It's pretty rare that I actually buy a book. <laughs> but I, I, I look at them a lot. And then... You know, whenever they kick me out, whenever they close, record my show. Airplane going over. Yeah, the the, uh, the bulk of those clouds that were around the moon have uh, have drifted on. Ow, my foot! All of a sudden, my left foot hurts feels like something poking into the uh, left-hand side of my left foot, if that makes any sense. Maybe it doesn't. 
I don't know. How long has this been? 20 minutes exactly. Okay. All right. Let's drive a little bit. Find uh, somewhere to get something to drink. be a long week already at work my cohort my uh, partner in crime um, is sick uh, I think she has strep yesterday afternoon I guess her, her doctor called and said you know you're we got your results we think you might have strep so she's like I don't know I she's like I might not be here tomorrow then I was like you think she goes to talk to our boss. Comes back and she's like, oh, "Okay, I have to go home now." I'm like, uh, that's a great idea because I don't freaking want strep. And then she was still just like, "It's like I feel, I feel bad. I feel bad taking the sick times." I'm like, "Are you freaking kidding? Get out of here! I don't want strep. Nobody wants strep. Go the hell home." So she was out today and um, got an email from my boss at the end of the day saying that. Uh, she will not be there tomorrow either. So, must be strep. Because she was saying, you know, no matter what, I'm definitely going to be at work on Wednesday. But, <laughs> she's not going to be. And I pretty much knew that at the time. It's like, okay. Oh, well. It's not too bad. I'm mostly keeping up, you know, with my work and hers. Luckily, it's been kind of slow. You know, for if if she was here, I'd be it'd be kind of slow. But you know, so I'm doing both of, both of our work. Um, you know, it's pretty busy. <laughs> so you know, that's okay. That makes the day go by faster. In fact, today felt like it was, was like you know, 45 minutes long. Oh man. Okay, I had this. Weird sensation I was on the wrong side of the road. But I'm on the right side of the road, which is the correct side of the road here. If I, now, if I was in England driving, then I would not be on the right side of the road. Or I would not be on the correct side of the road, the proper side. So why do I still feel like I should be over there? I'm driving in the same direction as the rest of the traffic is the damn hell is my problem see it's little stuff like that that I'm, I'm experiencing where I'm just like am I sure that what I think is is what I'm supposed to do if that actually is what I'm supposed to do am I really here this is all my my reality uncertainties it's not really so much a reality shift it's like well, in a way it is. I don't know. I don't know. I'll get into that more um, when I record for Central. So that'll be out next Monday, um, September 3rd, which is Labor Day, by the way. I might record a show on Labor Day. I don't know. That's kind of the groove I'm, I'm taking lately. Where, you know, record a show early in the week and then release it toward the end of the week, like usually on Friday or Saturday. Feels good. 
that way, if I happen to want to add stuff at the end, you know, if, if something happens on Thursday that I'm just like, damn it, I have to talk about this on the Shamble Show, I could just, uh, you know, append um, an extra recording to the episode. You know, that'd be fine. That'd be fine. So, hmm, where do I want to get a drink? I'll get a juice. I'm heading toward the gas station slash convenience store. Oh, gas is freaking three ninety nine now here. Three ninety nine. Point nine 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 nine. So, of course, that really means four dollars. I don't know why the hell it spiked up. Yesterday it was like I don't know three three fifty nine or something. It spiked up forty cents in like a day's time. I usually would do that toward the end of the the week, you know, before, just before a holiday. But today they're doing it a bit early. Or this this time they're doing it a bit early. stuff going on this weekend. My mom's having a, uh, a barbecue and cookout for uh, some of our some of our relatives. Um, and then, actually, this that's on Saturday, and actually the same day, um, my daughter's going to a birthday party of one of her best friends. And Sunday, what are we doing Sunday? Oh, Sunday we're going to see my my in-laws some point and my wife's birthday is on Saturday so we'll be celebrating that um, Saturday for you know for just us and then Sunday for with her parents and then Monday's Labor Day and we might be going swimming if the weather's alright for it that'll be the last time we get to go swimming for the year probably yeah, oh, there's Quick and Easy. That's where I'm going to stop. And I still have like a, a just over a half a tank of gas. So I'm, I'm glad of that. So maybe I'll get lucky and the price will go back down before I need to put more in. Because I don't really need to go anywhere except back and forth to work for the next few days. I think. Yeah, so... I should be okay until the weekend. Alright, we are now at the quick and the easy. Quick and easy. Q-I-K-N-E-Z. It's weird, but I guess it works. I think I'll pause you for a sec. Can that noise? I always hear this weird noise of birds here. Um, you know, underneath the big carport thing where you get gas. Guess I should have kept recording. Oh well. Anyway, I'm going in, so I'll just go ahead and leave it on. Jeez, that's eerie. Almost Hitchcockian.
Ocean spray, cran grape. Some of those energy drinks, Rockstar Recovery, Amp Energy Drink. I don't need energy this late at night. I haven't tried one of those. I might try one sometime. Record the results. Korean grape it is. Not that orange, apple juice, or maybe orange. Rarely orange. The money situation is right there. said that uh, Isaac was supposed to go kind of a similar trajectory to uh, Katrina, you know, a few years back. Hopefully it won't be as disastrous. Have we checked the levees lately? I don't know. KK. This is a buck 89? expensive, but it's better for me than the soda, so I should drink it once in a while. And when I drink it, it's really, I find it really good, so I don't know why I don't drink it more often. Hmm. It tastes a little bit off. What the? Why would that be? Oh, well. Where is that? Somebody thinks he's all badass. Revving it up. Urgh. 
else do I even want to talk about? I don't know. Hey, there's a dude from Steak and Shake. He was just like staring at me. He was in his little chef outfit with the apron and everything. And I'm holding up the recorder to my mouth and he's just like staring. What the hell is that guy doing? here so uh, let's just go this way head toward home damn birds it's so creepy it's the only place that, that I hear them that late at night it's freaking scary man and, and if I get gas there in the daytime I don't notice it because it's daytime and you're used to hearing birds in the daytime man oh nam Ugh. Mm. all right that's a little better oh my gosh something popped into my head the other day um this memory I hadn't really thought about for a long time. Uh, summer of 1999. Okay, I, uh, I was 24 years old. And um, I had some friends that worked at um, this uh, place called the Dairy Barn in uh, one of the local towns. And so I would go and visit them and hang out you know, try to get free food. Usually that wouldn't pay off for me. I think once it did. Here are some cheesies. <laughs> but there was an air conditioning unit outside. It's like it's like July, it's really hot and stuff. And so I would I, I got this idea. A couple of my friends were working there, like in the kitchen. And I had this idea I was gonna come around um, and pop my head into the window and and surprise them that way. Like, I thought that was really brilliant. So I'm like, doo-doo-doo, and it's like, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-d
in the 19th century that somehow got this huge railroad spike stuck through his head and uh you know, all these scientists and psychologists have said, uh, well, you know, that is proof that, uh, you know, if you, you know, you can affect the, the brain, you know, the side of the brain with, the, you know, the neurons, and I don't know exactly how it, how it works, like his frontal lobe, um, and his personality completely changed where he used to be a gentle man, you know, now he was very irascible and short-tempered, and I'm like, well, he got a railroad spike stuck through his head. Would you be happy? I don't think so. You might be a little bit of a grumpy face if that happened to you. So, you know, I don't know if that really proves anything or not. <laughs> Just my personal feelings. But luckily that didn't happen to me. I'm, I'm very grateful to to God. And, uh, ah, it's pretty good. And great. So, alright, I am I'm approaching home. It's been recorded for about 37 minutes now. So, this may be, this may be the entire episode, or uh, as I said, I might um, add some more on it later. Additional. Uh, something like that. need to read a few more pages to get up to 50 pages for today. I've, I've stuck with that. Over a month now, I've read at least 50 pages every day. Sometimes it's like just over 50, but uh, a couple times I'll, I'll get up to like about 100. Um, on the weekends, um, sometimes I'll get like 180 pages in a day, which, but that's, you know, that's on a weekend when there's not much else going on, or, you know, there's long periods of time where I'm like, I'm watching Jackie, but, you know, I can also read, too. So I get some good quality reading done then. And usually by the time I'm, I'm done reading a book, I'll have decided what I'm going to read next. So I've got it on hand, ready to go. Because I don't ever, ever, ever want to be caught without a book. I always want to have something to read. Like I said, it's one of those weird little quirks. I don't know what to call it. do the rest of that reading up to 50 pages, maybe a little more. And another quirk I have in reading is that I, you know, if I get interrupted and I have to stop before I get to the end of a chapter or the end of a section, I get very uneasy. <laughs> Usually I'll just be like, wait, 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 hang on, I got three paragraphs left to the end of the, you know, and just the white space between scenes, that's sufficient. That, that's a fine place to stop. Or at the end of a chapter, that's ideal. But if I'm in the middle of a section and I've still got a few pages to go, it's just it's madness, you know. It drives me freaking crazy. That's why I usually don't read just before I start working. You know, I get there a few minutes early. That's probably the one time I don't crack open the book if I have nothing to do. Because I don't want to be in the middle of a chapter and have to start 
working, I have to set it down. Which we'll threw off my entire my entire day, <laughs> my entire equilibrium. Oh, both cats are in the in the front window watching watching me. Those two little cat silhouettes. This is my second Hitchcock reference of the night. I don't know what to make of that. Okay, I put the drink very carefully on my the seat of my van, and I don't want to spill it, and I did not spill it. Yay! Happy times for me. Okay, this is probably it for tonight, or for this show. Probably.
Alright, it's the next day. I just gotta tell you guys of something that I saw. Um, so, um, I'm driving along a, a busy street here in Bloomington, and uh, it's rush hour, okay? Um, everybody's just got off work. Um, there's this guy walking alongside the street, um, about uh, maybe in his, his mid-20s, alright? He's, he's wearing all black. He's got a, a black baseball cap on uh, with nothing fun. written on it and, that and I could see. The, I um, he's got a Marilyn Manson t-shirt on. Um, his black Central pants have a bunch of those show. little buckles on them. Really, with all the stuff and that I do, on uh, his I do a left lot of shoulder stuff is this on my big shows. adult but uh, blue and green parakeet, just been which really he's walking along at like a normal pace, ongoing but he's thing very carefully stroking the parakeet's the head. When Jimbo hosted, Where the hell is that guy going? I may pod fade again. I mean, really, if there is somebody out there who feels they could do something new and tackle the Overnight Scape Central for a while, I would uh, relish the idea of a break. Although, at the other hand, it's sort of like it's my baby, so to speak. So, it, even if somebody does take over for a while, I would probably, at some point in the future, expect to reclaim the Overnight Scape Central. And it, we continue to do it each and every week here on the Overnight Scape Underground. If you're just listening to this and you aren't checking that out on a regular basis, you really ought to because it's a good stepping stone if you ever have it in your head to do podcasting, whatever you would call this. I Maybe this is more like some sort of audio entertainium journal that I do because that's really what I talk about. Yes, sometimes I talk about ideas and concepts, but generally speaking, I am foisting these programs and what I watch and what I listen to and what I have and my own opinionated skew on the whole thing and suggestions and really urging you to do your own digging. And I want to know what you dig. And if you chose to do a show or segments on the central or even contribute something here, because the big appreciation showcase, as well as the regular appreciator, if you have a shorter thing, is wide open to any sort of uh, concept you might come up with. And I could never, I, I could never ramble the way like Shambles does or Frank does. I've made several attempts and they're in the archive. I'm just too easily distracted by whatever's going on around me. If I'm in my head and on a long walk, somehow it's different and I can get lost in my head. But when I'm actually actively talking, I'm sort of self-conscious that people are looking and much more aware of my surroundings. Whereas if I'm taking a walk around T or C of an evening, it's just, I don't notice much of anything. I get so lost in my own thoughts and the digressions. And really, when I do that, I don't know that anybody else would even follow where my brain goes. I just, I can leap from topic to topic. And when I'm doing it just for myself in my head, there's no idea 
of getting back to any particular point. It's just like this freewheeling juggernaut of thought going through my head. And it's quite pleasant, I guess, to my own consciousness. But to subject somebody else, I don't think that's a fair thing. Uh, me with a car would be even less coherent. I just, there's too much going on and operating a motor vehicle. I really, when I'm driving, on the rare occasions I drive, I should not be thinking about a recording or entertaining anyone or following any particular track of thought because I'm liable to cause an accident, probably. I just lose all sense of reality. And I can really, really identify being a tall person and being kind of an absent-minded person that you kneel down or you crouch down and you forget that there might be something directly above your head and you stand up and give yourself uh, a minor concussion or a big lump on your head or nearly knock yourself out and just being tall in certain places uh, thinking, not thinking that there's a doorway and your head might be taller or there's some sort of chandelier or fixture or object that other people can walk under and maybe I can't. It's really, I have, I, I, this may be part of my problem. I may have uh, concussed myself one too many times and suffer from like one of those syndromes that professional wrestlers and football players get where you've just banged your head around so many times. It, it is quite possible. I wonder if I had to leave my brain to science, although I don't think... God, could you just imagine what could be with my poor brain? There's a... <laughs> Anyways, uh, we haven't had any music this time around, so let's dig back into the archives and find an old 78, some sort of toe-tapper out of the archive.org where I dig around for this stuff. I have a man who was born Marion Tri Slaughter. That's right. Just like John Wayne, Marion, M-A-R-I-O-N, was a popular name for men. And Marion Tri Slaughter, according to Wikipedia, was better known by his stage name, Vernon Dalhart. And he was an early American country music singer and songwriter. Uh, the first country song reputed to sell one million copies, The Wreck of the Old 97. I mean, it hasn't been verified because nobody really kept track for any number of reasons. Probably mostly that the record companies just wanted to stick the money in their pocket and cook the books and not necessarily pay performers what they might be worth. Um, but let's hear a little bit, uh, as long as I'm here on Wikipedia, about Vernon Dalhart. He was born in Jefferson, Texas on April 6, 1883. He took his stage name from two towns, Vernon and Dalhart in Texas, between which he punched cattle as a teenager in 1890. So he did do some actual cowboy stuff. I had always heard that he was um, a phony as far as that goes. But uh, in 1910, he moved his family to 
New York City after marrying in 1901, and uh, his education was rooted in classical music. He wanted to be an opera singer and actually uh, performed in Madame Butterfly and HMS Pinafore, and he did make over 400 recordings of light classical music and early dance band vocals. But somewhere in the 20s, he started doing this country shtick. Uh, he stated in a 1918 interview, amidst criticism of his accent seeming artificial, when you're born and brought up in the South, your only trouble is to talk any other way. The sure enough Southerner talks almost like a Negro, even when he's white. I've broken myself of the habit, more or less, in ordinary conversation, but it still comes pretty easy. And yes, some of the dialect voices I used to do and sometimes do, I really do worry because in this day and age, if you are walking the line and starting to sound like a minstrel show, you could get in a lot of trouble. His big hit, of course, was The Wreck of the Old 97, a classic American ballad about the derailment of Fast Mail Train number 97 near Danville, Virginia, in 1903. And the Prisoner's Song was the B-side. So these two songs really made him an immortal in recording. And because of this success, this is why the Victor Company sent Ralph here to the Southern Mountains in 1927. And someday... Everybody who studies the history of music, especially country music, should familiarize themselves with Ralph Peer's The Bristol Sessions, which led to the discovery of Jimmy Rogers, the father of country music, the Mississippi Blue Yodeler, one of my favorites and one of my uh, pop culture heroes. What a story, Jimmy Rogers. Uh, that's R-O-D. G-E-R-S, in case you uh, become curious and want to look them up. And the Carter family, who continued well into, I think there's still some adjunct of the Carter family currently existing, but the original Carter family played amazing traditional music with just a slightly commercial edge. And uh, Vernon Dalhart himself uh, died in... 1948 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And if you dig around, you can find a lot of stuff because he was out there all the time. And what we have today is a recording that he made back uh, in 1923, I believe. And uh, the title of this track that we're about to hear is The Pal That I Loved Stole the Gal That I Love." Oh, that I... 
gal that I loved and took all my sunshine and joy. Nobody but he was a buddy to me since we played on the floor with our toys. I just can't believe my old pal would deceive. Gee, but I'm heartsick and sore. The pal that I loved stole the gal that I loved. That's why we're not pals Ah, yes, and what a voice. Just all that vibrato that they used to have. I mean, trained singing voices. You can tell the guy did at least light opera at some point. That vibrato thing that I certainly... Well, I don't consider myself a great singer by any stretch of anyone's imagination, but I sure wish I could do those vibrato things and and sound like a real singing guy and not just some guy humming along... Well, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, and at least I can sort of stay vaguely in tune, which, I don't know, some people, they struggle, and it it can be painful. It's like singing some karaoke nights. Oh, my, my, my. Have you ever been to one of those karaoke nights where there, I mean, one egotistical karaoke person who can't quite keep tune is kind of amusing, but when almost the whole lineup all night long is this caterwauling, uh, as one might put it, oh boy. Uh, And I guess it certainly is a lot cheaper than hiring a band and a lot more entertaining than just playing the jukebox. And, well, now it's all changed. Bars used to just be able to pretty much do what they want, and there was no thought, and now... I don't know if you've noticed as a patron, but ASCAP is suddenly very interested in getting these pennies of royalties 
from people doing covers or public businesses. I mean, in my day, a public business, yeah, you had the radio on and people came in and yeah, they could hear the radio, but it wasn't any big deal. Now they actually have these finks, these agents that go out to businesses and if they hear you playing the radio or if you're a venue and you have a band there who's playing non-original material, like doing a Beatles cover or whatever, they're going to report you. And all of a sudden you have ASCAP, this huge company billing you and trying to get you to sign up for this permit or this license. And they get more and more expensive every year. And more and more, they're just killing live music, killing the ability. Well, we can hear music in our homes. We can subscribe to Spotify. We can listen to the radio in our car and expecting music in a public place. Our tastes have become so subjective anyways. It used to be what everybody liked. Okay, maybe you don't like that song, but everybody sort of liked something along the same lines. And even that now, even I, like there's some stuff that I just, it's like nails on a chalkboard or just uninteresting. A lot of what goes on in the top 40 nowadays and what is considered up-to-date hip hit music, just, I mean, it, I don't think it's awful necessarily a lot of the time, but I, it goes in one ear or out the other. I'm just not engaged by it in any real manner. Um, well, let's move along. Uh, let's have some more old-time radio stuff. There was a show back in the day called Gangbusters, kind of a presage to the dragnet, uh, quasi-true crime dramatization type of a program, and uh, this stuff is delicious. Let's listen together. And now, in cooperation with police and federal law enforcement department throughout the United States, the only national program that brings you authentic police case histories. Gangbusters! Special attention. Tonight, Saturday, December 22nd, 1945, a crime wave of the most serious proportions is spreading throughout the United States. A serious crime is being committed every 40 seconds and a murder every three hours. And so we present Louis J. Valentine, former commissioner of the largest police force in the world, who will interview by proxy the Honorable Fred N. Hauser, district attorney of Los Angeles County, California. Commissioner Valentine. Mr. Hauser, I know that tonight's case is about one of the cruelest killers of the last decade. Commissioner Valentine... The facts of tonight's case are almost unbelievable. During January of last year, such police flashes as the following were cracking out over the California airwaves. Attention, Al Simeone, most dangerous gunman at large today. Epidemic of vicious holdups along California coast. Simeone cutting with penitentiary. Simeone, burglary, December 4th, 1930. Rearrested, sent to San Quentin, 1933. Assault with deadly weapon, 
attempt to commit murder, 1933. Killer, age 32, 6 feet, 150 pounds, slender build, dark complexion, piercing eyes. This man is fanatically cunning. Approach with caution. Hello, darling. Listen, baby, I'm treating you to a late dinner tonight. Well, then I can see you tonight. Yeah. La Flamingo Club for dinner and dancing. Oh. Get a table about 11 tonight. Oh, look, if I'm a little late, order a big dinner for us, huh? Steaks, ice cream. Working late again, darling? Yeah. Oh, I'm crazy for you. <laughs> you know me for one week and you're crazy for me. <laughs> you know I am. <laughs> okay, Louise, have a big dinner ordered. I, uh, <clears throat> like a big dinner after I finish my work. This is a nice place you got here. Well, we like all people to be happy and gay in Ash's Cafe. Well, <laughs> <laughs> to gaiety and to life. And to the success of... You got a gun. Stranger, put away that gun. All of you stay right where you are. This is a hold-up. <laughs> you the owner. Open the cash register. You're, you're joking. Open the cash register. But... But you've been sitting at the bar drinking for an hour. You're a friend. You're joking. I'm late for an appointment. Open that cash register. All the money. This is all of it. Turn your back and close the register. Why should I close it? Turn your back and close the register. If anyone moves, I'll kill them, too. I'm late for a dinner appointment. So long, folks. Emergency killing at Ash's Bar. Wanton murder of proprietor. Killer, slight of build. Black hair. Dressed as fashion plate. Has nervous habit of clearing throat. Description fits that of lone gunman Simeone. This killer is fiendishly cunning. Sound a general alarm. This man must be taken dead or alive. Oh, darling, I've ordered the most wonderful dinner for us. La Flamingo is best. <laughs> you, uh, you like that, huh? Steaks, French fries, and broccoli with hollandaise. Only a brunette would know what a man loves to eat. Do you really like brunettes better than blondes, Al? I never looked twice except at a brunette. Oh, well, you're terrific. I've only known you a week, but I'd die for you. <laughs> what a charming way to make love. Al, mm. why were you so late coming tonight? What, what business are you in? Well, uh, <clears throat> you laugh. Why? I'm a toy salesman. I sell children's toys. No, why would I laugh at that? That was why I was late tonight. I had to meet a man at the cafe. I could make more money, but the pleasure of knowing when you sell toys, little children will play with them and be happy. Oh, Al, you're so sweet. I didn't know there were men like you. Didn't you? No. But you do make money at it, Al. You always seem to have so much money. The way I got things planned, baby, I'm going to have lots more. Mr. 
This is a hold-up. Quiet. Mr. Blackhead, bandit. You've all been hearing of police flashes recently. You know I shoot quick if anyone moves. Strange, a woman tending bar. I am Mrs. Ortega. My husband owns this tavern. I only do it sometimes to help him. Uh, <clears throat> your husband here tonight? Yes, in the back room. Miss Ortega was a veteran of World War I. We have a son who's fighting in the Pacific now. That's nice. Somebody turn the radio on. I like to have music. Thanks, that's the idea. Now, Mrs. Ortega, open a cash register. I will not do it. My husband and I work hard for our money. Music sounds pretty. Now let's have the music at the cash register opening. No. I'll shoot. You would shoot the mother of a boy who's fighting for your country. If he were here, you would not dare talk to me like this. But he isn't here. Why don't you just talk to my wife? No. I stand in front of her. Oh, dramatic, son. Oh, you're the one I wanted anyhow. Forget the cash register. Open the safe. I will open it. You can have everything there is. So it's me. Open it. Scoop it up and give it to me. Put it in this bag. Now you'll turn your back and close the safe. You have everything. Now go and leave us. I said to close the safe. All right. My husband, my husband. You got my husband. waiting for you. Yeah. Come on, sit down. What's the matter, honey? No cute little blonde ever ought to be scared. Well, the park's so dark and you're late. Then all of a sudden I heard the sirens of police cars. Oh. Yeah. <clears throat> Some uh, unscrupulous person probably pulled a hold up. No, I was foolish. Now you're here, I'm not afraid. <laughs> I love blondes. <laughs> no brunettes. I hate brunettes. I'm afraid you swept me off my feet, Al. Five days and you're it. Good. I had a little work to do, but I've looked forward all evening to meeting you out here on the park bench. Al, hmm? what do you do for a living? Me? Oh, you'll laugh if I tell you. No, I won't. I'm a salesman for artificial limbs. Limbs? Artificial limbs, legs, arms. I don't know, it, it gives me a feeling of worthwhileness. Bringing happiness to people who are unfortunate. Oh, Al, you do. I could make more money other ways, but what's money beside the finer things in life? Al, you're wonderful. Well, <clears throat> I don't think I'm so good, but what's my opinion against thousands? 
There goes the police siren again. What's the matter? Are you nervous? Of course not. Not with you here. It's just a police car, probably hunting down some gunmen. Well, I hope they get him, too. Sure, sure, sure. They're probably after that gunman who's been doing a lot of killing in cafes. Oh. Oh, but don't worry, honey. You've got me right here to look after you. I got a lot of plans, baby. And you're in every one of them. Mr. Hauser, I certainly agree with you that Al Simeone was one of the cruelest killers of the past decade. I know you have many more interesting facts to tell us. But first... Now, back to Gangbusters and Commissioner Valentine. With killer Al Simone. Loose, Mr. Hauser. I know the district attorney's office as well as the police were faced with quite a problem. We certainly were, Commissioner, because Simone combined the worst features of a master criminal. He was vicious, tricky, unpredictable. One particular instance should be noted. Another scotch and soda lady up this way. Attention, please. All cafes and restaurants. Quiet, everyone, please. There's a special announcement coming on over the radio. We are breaking in on this program to make a very special announcement. The killer who has been operating in cafes and taverns is still at large. We ask all cafe owners and tavern owners to keep as little cash in their safes as possible. Special plainclothes detectives are covering many California cafes. This killer who has been causing a reign of terror is vicious. Now we will continue with our program. Turn off the radio. It is too depressing. There's some music, please. You know, if that killer came in here, I'd give him a clip on the jaw and knock him flat. Oh, don't talk that way. No, I would, I would. He's probably yelling through and through. It is the man who talks too loud who is the most frightened. Yeah, well, I still say I'd hit him with my fist and knock him out. Yeah. Do not talk so loud, please. The people are laughing at you and they... <laughs> An amusing way I have. You think I'm the braggart? No, I'm him. Up in the cash register. Don't shoot. Don't. I will give you all the money we have. Open it. Yes, Yes, I will open it. I've been watching this place. You have extra money in hand. You would take that money from us so hard, my husband and me work. Don't, don't get him angry, Mama. Let him take all the money and go away. No. We worked for it too hard. Don't make a move, anybody. You, you shot my wife. My wife. Shot these phone. I'll shoot anyone else who tries to stop me. Emergency, double shooting, Southgate Cafe, Mrs. Gertrude Nelson in serious condition, Mr. Frank Nelson, her husband, has died, killer, slight of build, black hair, immaculately dressed, fiendishly cunning, this killer must be caught dead or alive, special officers are being assigned to all cafe districts. <laughs> you look strange, Fingers. The last time I saw you, there were bars in front of you. The same to you. See, you're hot, Simeone. The cops are sending out flashes about you every night. But I'm like the ghost who disappears. I can use you, Fingers. How'd you get in my room here? How'd you know where I was? I have ways. Uh, mind if I put this bag of eggs down here on the bed? Eggs? Yeah, yeah, I... Uh, <clears throat> I was on my way home. I get hungry sometimes after jobs, so I buy a few eggs and 
carry them around in this little paper bag. You go nuts. Uh, don't move quick in the bed and break them, fingers. <laughs> Maybe if I put them under the covers with you, you might hatch them, huh? <laughs> Am I awake or are you a nightmare? Fingers, I've thought up a new racket, and I can use you. Yeah? Yeah, I pulled my last holdup of taverns and cafes. I'm going to give the cops a different kind of headache. Look, all over Los Angeles, they have check cashing stations. Yeah, they got banks, too. So what? At all the big industrial plants, they got checkbooks. So? So these big corporations make checks out to the employees. The employees go to any one of a couple of hundred cash windows and cash their checks. Go on. You're getting interesting. There are so many of these places, the cops couldn't possibly cover them all. Yeah. Now, uh, if I had a light-fingered man who could visit a lot of corporations... And Pick up a lot of loose checks. I could forge the checks, go to one of these cashing booths, and, uh, shall we say, cash in? Brother, this ain't no nightmare. It's a dream. So says what? So says you're good. So says you does it, Venus, hmm? What do I get? Ten percent. It's a deal. It's good for a couple of grand a week. Oh, careful. I hope I didn't break those eggs in your little paper bag. Look inside and see. What do you think of my bag of eggs? A gun, 38. What a beaut. <laughs> what a gag. Yeah. I walk around like a little stuffed shirt with my little paper bag held in front of me. <laughs> if the cops should start trailing me, I drop the little paper bag. It isn't mine, I don't know what's inside, and they can't hold me for carrying concealed weapons. And when you go to a window to cash a check? I'll place my little paper bag on the window, and if there's any trouble, there's the little gun right at my hand. <laughs> You're crazy, Simeone. Crazy. Crazy like a fox. <laughs> I have a hunch, Fingers. This little check cashing racket's gonna have the cops a poppin'. Pardon me. <laughs> Pretend you know me. I'll scream. I'll shout for an officer. I'm an officer. Here's my badge. Oh. This is very confidential. I know who you are. A cashier at the Acme Check Cashing Service. What? Well, yeah. We're contacting you this way so as not to place you in any danger. Shake hands with me. Yeah. That's a picture I'm putting in your hand. A picture of a criminal we're after. If he stops at your cash window, tell him you can't cash his check. But to go to the check cashing window in the terminal building. You understand? Yes, sir. That's all you need to know. We didn't want to contact you at your home. Thank you, that's all. Hello? This is the Los Angeles police. Mr. Henry? Why, uh, yes? We're mailing you a picture. Please keep it in the strictest confidence. What do you mean? A picture of a criminal. If this man comes to your check-cashing window, tell him you can't cash his check. He'll have to go to the check-cashing window in the terminal building. I'll do anything you say, sir. The picture will arrive by mail in the morning. Please keep this in the strictest confidence. Yes, I shall be glad to, sir. Headquarters. Captain, this is Inspector Harwood. Yes, Inspector. There are scores of check-cashing windows in Los Angeles. Now, between the district attorney's office and our own department, 
We've contacted almost every clerk. If this black-haired killer goes to one of these windows to cash any more of those bogus checks, I think there's going to be fireworks. Good work, Inspector. We've laid enough traps, but he's avoided every one. We've got to get him before he murders any more people. And if we can, take him alive. Well, I'm going to cover the terminal building myself, sir. And if he's sent there... Yes, what's your plan? The way the terminal building's built. I'll have to be a hundred feet away from the booth. But I've had my shoes, rubber, soled, and heave. I think I can make a run and hit him with a flying tackle. He's quick as a cat with a gun. He's going to have to be this time, sir, because I want to keep on living, too. Well, hello. Good morning. I am. <clears throat> want to cash a check and uh, don't knock this paper bag of eggs off your window ledge. <laughs> I didn't know eggs were so scarce you men had to carry them around with you. <laughs> Fresh ones are. I um, have a wage check I want to cash. Well, let me see it. Yeah. Say, don't you get lonesome sitting in that booth all by yourself? Hmm? Sometime. And I red headed then. Yeah. You, uh, work for the oil company? Oh, yes. Hmm. $250, eh? I'm a scientist. You are? Hmm. A scientist who loves redheads. <laughs> Flatterer. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sorry, sir, but, uh, I'm afraid you'll have to go down to the terminal building to cash this. Why? Well, uh, we're a little low on funds. Uh, I'm sorry, sir. The terminal building. Uh, there's a cashier's booth there, like this one. Oh, you can't miss it. It's right in the middle of the building. Well, all right. Oh, don't forget your bag of eggs. Uh, you know, I got a weakness for redheads. Have you? Hmm. Look, after I get my check cashed, suppose I come back and see you. Well, maybe. We could have a lot of fun. All right, I tell you. Um, you cash your check down there, and... Uh, if you aren't doing anything afterwards, come back and see me. <laughs> it's a date, Red. You'll be seeing me. Maybe. Operator. Operator. Give me the terminal building, quick. Is this the terminal check cashing window? Yes. I've got a check on that cash. No, certainly. I'll, uh, <clears throat> just... Put this bag of eggs up on the shelf here. Oh, don't drop them now. I don't want any scrambled eggs at this window. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, this is a paycheck of $250. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, right here. Mm hmm. This is your signature? It is. That's nice. You worked there long? Oh, about five years. I'm in the research department. You must like that work. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, can you cash the check? Oh, yes, yes. Let me see now. I've got to get my money out. What identification do you have? I'll have my cards, and I can show you some of my papers. Oh! oh! Good work, Inspector. He's out cold, Captain. What a football tackle. He's a slippery article, Inspector. He had, to, he had his gun in his bag. I'll get these cuffs on him. Inspector, you've tackled the cruelest killer on the West Coast, and he still doesn't know what struck him. He will, though, by the time the courts get through with him. That's why I wanted him alive, so they could give him what he's got coming to him. Uh, uh, what hit me? What hit me? The law, Simeone. The law.
Well, Commissioner Valentine, Simeone was convicted of murder. And just three weeks ago today, he was taken into the death room of San Quentin Penitentiary at two minutes past ten in the morning. Eight and a half minutes later, Simeone was pronounced... Dead. 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 Thank you, Mr. Hauser, for telling us the facts in tonight's case. Clever as Simeone was, he wasn't clever enough to beat the combined forces of the law. Or, as the shadow said on his old-time radio show, the weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Crime does not pay. The shadow knows. Yeah, this kind of stuff is just so juicy and good and lurid and a lot of what I love about even the horror and crime, the, the tough guy stuff um, on old-time radio which I try to include as much as possible in these showcases of things I appreciate and hope you do. And uh, talking about comic strips again, which is a topic I keep going back to, um, there is still, I believe, a comic strip called Snuffy Smith, unless I'm mistaken. Let's, uh, let's do a quick look-see and see if there is such a thing. I believe it is still going on as far as the Wikipedia. It, it ran, it celebrated a century of running in 2019, but of course, Barney Google was supplanted by a hillbilly uh, back in the day, and the strip originally centered around the adventures of Barney Google, perhaps you've heard of him, and oddly enough, indirectly, Google is named for Barney Google, um, when a mathematician was trying to come up with a name for the number that is a one with 100 zeros after it, for whatever reason, he decided to call it a Google because Barney Google was sort of a wealthy character, although he was forever losing his fortune to hair-brained uh, schemes. And the strip was actually originally titled Take Barney Google for instance, and it had its most popular time right in the early 20s. Uh, he bought a nag racehorse named Sparkplug, who suddenly became successful, and people just ate it up and loved that stuff. And there was a song, which you may have heard, and if you haven't, you're about to, as recorded by the Whitehall Dance orchestra, which is probably some amalgamin of uh, musicians, to because this is not the hit version of the song. Back in the day, it was like K-Tel City, if you remember the K-Tel label and their imitations of hit songs at a discount. Um, people loved the song, and you could get the hit version on a 78 for a certain price, but for much cheaper... Uh, you could hear the song, which, you know, even in 1919, you couldn't hear music even on the radio. And I don't know about jukeboxes. So if you really wanted to hear a song, you could either get the sheet music, learn to play it, and play it yourself. Or you could buy a record. And this is one of those records. Just the Whitehall Dance Orchestra. It's scratchy, I'm sure as heck. Barney Google the song.
an instrumental version which i wasn't anticipating but i have the lyrics who's the most important man this country ever knew who's the man our presidents tell all their troubles to no it isn't mr Bryan, and it isn't mr hughes i'm mighty proud that i'm allowed a chance to introduce barney google with the goo goo googly eyes barney google bet his horse would win the prize when the horses ran that day, spark plug ran the other way. Barney Google with the goo goo googly eyes. Who's the greatest lover that the country ever knew? Who's the man that Valentino takes his hat off to? No, it isn't Douglas Fairbanks that the ladies rave about. When he arrives, who makes the wives chase all their husbands out? Barney Google with the goo goo googly eyes. Barney Google had a wife three times his size. She sued Barney for divorce. Now he's sleeping with his horse. Barney Google with his goo-goo-googly eyes. And like I say, I'm not the world's greatest singer, but around 1934, Snuffy Smith stuck in and hillbillies were just so popular that he sort of took over the strip. And yeah, Barney appears now and then, uh, makes an occasional return appearance. But yeah, it now it's the Snuffy Smith strip. And as far as I know, to this very day, depending on your newspaper, you, or you can look them up online. A lot of people read the funnies online. And yeah, there he is, Snuffy Smith. Yes, the FF effect, and that the rural sound of comic strips, so to speak. And uh, back to crime, and uh, this isn't true crime or anything even like it. There was a detective series of films and radio shows in the 1940s about Boston Blackie that were based on uh, novellas and short stories 
and that I dug up a novella featuring Boston Blackie for us to listen to together. Boston Blackie's Little Pal by Jack Boyle From the Red Book Magazine, June 1918 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dale Grothman One of the powers that prey does a good turn for his victim, but he gets the jewels. For Boston Blackie is a prince of burglars, and he plays God from the machine like a man. Boston Blackie's Little Pal by Jack Boyle the room was faintly illuminated by the intermittent flame of the wood fire slowly dying on the hearth of the open grate the house was silent dark seemingly deserted outside the dripping san francisco fog clung to everything in heavy impenetrable folds that isolated the residence from its neighbors as though it stood alone in an otherwise empty world Inside the handsomely furnished living room and opposite the fire which now and then leapt up and cast his shadows in grotesque shapes against the ceiling stood a man intently studying the paneled walls a man with a white handkerchief masking his face and a coat that sagged under the weight of the gun slung ready for instant use beneath one of its lapels the man was boston blackie a master among crooks who lived by pitting skill and daring against the best safeguards a property-loving world has devised for its own protection and risking liberty and life on the issue of the game concealed behind the oaken panels he inspected so painstakingly was a safe in which lay the wilmerding jewels a famous collection Boston Blackie was there to make them his own. He ran accurately sensitive fingers, sandpapered until the blood showed redly beneath the skin, over the woodwork, seeking the hidden spring he knew was there, for an incautious servant's remark had traveled up through the underworld until it reached Blackie, the one in a thousand expert enough to use it. Quickly, his questing fingers located the key panel, and the door rolled noiselessly back, disclosing a steel strong-box. "'Ah, neatly arranged,' murmured the safe-cracker in an inaudible and satisfying whisper, as he stooped and gently turned the combination knob. It revolved without a perceptible sound, but science is an impartial ally, the ally of able crooks, as well as those who wore upon them. Blackie laid a tiny metal disc against the combination. Wires led from it to a transmitter he hooked over his ear. Then he turned the dial knob again slowly, with infinite care. The audion bulb within the transmitter, science's newest device for magnifying otherwise imperceptible sound, carried to his ear plainly the faint click of the tumblers within as the dial crossed the numbers of the combination that guarded the jewels. One by one he memorized them, 
slowly but surely reading the combination that once his would enable him to open the safe take the gems relock the strong box and depart without leaving behind the slightest outward evidence that robbery had been done the cracksman smiled contentedly as he worked already he reckoned the wilmerding collection of jewels as his own a faint sound from behind caught his ear he straightened quickly dropped the audion bulb into his pocket and slid the panel noiselessly back into place a step on the stair he whispered in sudden alarm and i was sure the house was empty except for the two servants asleep below stairs i counted them out one by one and yet there's someone coming down from above coming down slowly stealthily too as he heard the second cautious step too bad in another five minutes i'd have been gone he drew his mask higher over his face and stepped backward into the shadow of the drapery before the window he had prepared for a quick exit in an emergency then he waited listening with every sense alert every muscle rigid again he heard the step now close to the doorway in the dim firelight a small tousled head appeared the head of a little child who stood irresolute outside the room gazing fearfully at the dark shadows within the boy a mere baby of four hesitated on the threshold of the dark room evidently trying to summon courage to enter the safe cracker from his refuge saw and read a conflict between fear and determination in the wide eyes of the little intruder for a full minute the child hung back then suddenly with a low cry half fearful but courageous he ran across the room to the window tumbled straight into the arms of the safecracker whose presence he had no inkling blackie fearing an outcry spoke quickly soothingly but the boy neither screamed nor cried he stared wonderingly for a moment into the kind eyes that looked down into his and then with a faint sigh of relief involuntarily nestled closer to the protecting arms that held him lonely frightened child finding comfort and consolation in the unexpected solace of human companionship who are you lisped the little fellow smiling comfortingly up into blackie's perplexed face then with a suddenly increased interest you isn't santy is you you isn't Sandy, cause that on your face is a hanky, not beards. He had reached up and given the partially rearranged handkerchief mask a gentle inquiring tug. Blackie smiled back at him. No, I'm not Santa Claus tonight, little man, he said. Who are you? I'm Martin Wilberding, Jr., and I'm four years old, the boy said proudly. You are? Well, well. And where is your mama and papa? Papa's gone away, mama says, and mama's gone to a party. And when mama was gone, then Nursie came out too and said she'd spank me if I told. John and Emily are downstairs sleeping, and I woke up and it was dark, and I was afraid, a little. 
So they've all traipsed off and left you alone for me to entertain, have they? said Blackie, his eyes narrowing grimly as understanding of the situation came to him. But what are you coming downstairs for? Looking for Mama? Oh, no. Mama won't come forever and ever so long. I was all alone and afraid, and I came down for Rex. Rex, who is he? asked Blackie quickly. My doggy, my woolly doggy. See, here he is. The boy squirmed out of Blackie's arms and pattered in bare feet to the window seat, where he resurrected Rex from underneath the cushion. Then he hurried back to Boston Blackie and climbed to his lap, with the toy dog clasped in his arms. Rex sleeps upstairs with me, the child informed his newfound friend. But tonight, Nursey forgot him, and I woke up and remembered where he was, and it was dark, and I wanted him so bad, so I come downstairs for him. I isn't afraid when I has Rex, cause I can hold him close and talk to him, and then we both go to sleep. See, isn't he a dear little doggy? Unconsciously, Boston Blackie's arm tightened around the soft little body nestled contently against his breast. You poor abandoned little kitty, he said softly. You poor little orphan. You're a little man, too, for it took real nerve to come down here after your pal Rex. Far more nerve than I had to use to get in here. I likes you. You're a nice man said the boy with childish intuitive understanding that the man in whose arm he lay was a friend blackie looked at his burden in puzzled indecision he hadn't the heart to desert his new-found pal and yet he was a safe-breaker in a strange house with each passing minute doubling his risk even the sound of their voices low-pitched though they were was in imminent danger the boy, quiet and content, cuddled close to him, hugging his precious woolly dog. "'Hadn't you better run back to bed, Martin?' said Blackie gently at last. "'Nursie will be back soon, and she'll be cross if she finds you down here.' The boy clutched the arm that sheltered him. "'Yes,' he admitted slowly. Then, wistfully, "'It's awful dark and quiet upstairs.' If you come up and tuck me and Rex in bed, we'll be good and go right to sleep. Please? Of course I will, said the safecracker, a bit huskily. I'd do it even if the whole house were full of coppers. He rose with the boy still in his arms. You must show me the way, Martin, he said. And we mustn't make any noise and wake John and Emily. They climbed the dark stairway together, and, the child directing, came to the open door of the big deserted nursery. A little empty bed revealed the refuge from which Martin Wilberding, Jr. had begun his perilous adventure in search of wrecks and companionship. Blackie laid the boy down and covered him as gently as a mother might have done. "'Good night, little pal,' he said. I'm glad I happened to be here tonight. The boy clutched his hand. Please stay and hold my hand, he pleaded. I's going right to sleep, if you will. Please, cause it's awful dark. 
Boston Blackie sat on the edge of the bed and took a tiny hand in his. The boy, with a sigh of perfect contentment, nestled snugly down in his downy comforts. Good night, he said drowsily. Good night, little pal, answered Blackie. Silence descended over the nursery as Blackie, with aching throat, waited hand in hand with the little Wilmerding heir, who was learning too soon that life's problems must be mastered alone and unaided. Five minutes passed, and Blackie, looking down, saw the boy was fast asleep, with baby lips parted in a peaceful smile, and Rex's fuzzy head tightly clasped to his breast. The safe-cracker gently withdrew his hand and smoothed the covers. Poor little chap, he said. Everything in the world that doesn't count, and only one real friend. Rex. Poor, lonely little chap. The safe-cracker crept noiselessly down the stairs to the room that contained the purpose of his visit. The fire had died to a few glowing embers. Again he rolled back the paneled door and exposed the safe. Again he adjusted the audion bulb and began anew the task of deciphering the combination. And again, with his work but half finished, there came a startling interruption. A short and a long blast from an auto horn that sounded from somewhere out in the fog. Mary's signal. Someone's coming, he reflected disgustedly. Quickly he drew a damp cloth from his pocket and mopped off the door of the safe and the woodwork to destroy the possibility of tell-tale fingerprints, then once more closed the panel. He drew back into the comparative safe shelter of the window hangings and waited. I'm going to have those jewels tonight if I have to stay here till morning, he murmured resolutely. I wonder who this can be. The nurse who slipped out on her own business and left that poor little kid alone, I suppose. The faint purr of a motor stopping before the house reached his ears. That doesn't sound like a nurse to me, he thought. If it's the mother of that boy, she'll be in here, likely enough, with all the lights on in a minute. Well, anyway, we'll wait and see what happens. The window's ready for a quick getaway, and all the coppers in town couldn't catch me once I'm outside in this fog, with Mary and the machine ready. We haven't lost out yet. The whir of the motor died, and the voices sounded outside as steps ascended from the street. Two are coming, a man and a woman, murmured Blackie. Matters are growing interesting. The outer door opened and closed softly. In the darkness the safe-cracker sensed two dim forms in the doorway. Then an electric button clicked, and the room was flooded with light. Blackie saw a brilliantly handsome woman, cloaked and in evening dress, and an equally handsome man, similarly garbed. The woman let her wrap slip to the floor as she turned to her companion. "'What is it, Don?' she asked apprehensively. "'What is troubling you so? Tell me.' "'The same thing that always troubles me,' he answered, stepping toward her and taking her hands in his. My love for you, Marion. The man drew her closer to him gently 
but irresistibly, and his arm dropped to her slender waist. Your own heart tells you all that is in mine. It must, he added quickly. Marion, dear, this torture must end tonight. For a second, with his arm around her, she swayed toward him. Then, slowly, she released herself and drew away. Don't, Don, please, she begged tremulously. You know we agreed not to discuss things that, that can't be remedied. Is this all you had to tell me? Is this why you brought me home now, from a dance where we might at least have forgotten and been happy for an hour? Her face, as she looked up at him, was a strangely mingled contradiction. There was reproach in her voice. There were tenderness and regret in her eyes. But behind them lay an instinctive, womanly shrinking from something to be feared. Yes, her companion said, studying her face. That is what I have come to tell you tonight. First, that I love you. Then, that I am going away, Marianne. I sail for Honolulu tomorrow morning, on the Manchuria. Oh, no, no! the woman cried, springing to his side and catching his arm in a movement imploringly detaining. Oh, Don, you wouldn't! You couldn't! Tell me it isn't so! You say you... you... care, and yet you would leave me to face an empty life here, alone, in this house? To Blackie, watching from within the window embrasure, the sweeping gesture of hate that accompanied her final word was as revealing as a diary. It seemed to picture the luxurious home as a prison in which love and a woman's illusions had slowly stiffened and died. It seemed the signed confession of an unhappy and embittered wife. And also, in the resentful recklessness, the gesture explained the man she called Don, the man who now gently drew her into his arms, and tilted her head till she faced him squarely. It is true that I am leaving on the Manchuria, he said, but it is not true that I am leaving you, because, as she stared up at him in breathless wonder, Marianne, dear, you are going with me. A slowly rising flush colored her white cheeks, and for just a second, her eyes answered the fire and tenderness of his. Then she laid trembling hands against his breast, and slowly pushed him away as she bowed her head. "'It can't be, Don,' she said, speaking so low the man stooped to hear her. "'What you ask is impossible. I can never do that. Never!' "'And why not?' he answered. "'It is because of what our friends will say?' that for them and their gossip snapping his fingers for a week idle tongues will buzz over teacups and cocktail glasses well let them you and i will not be here to hear we will be together far out on the pacific under the warm sun and sky with heartache forever dead and buried beyond horizon and a lifetime of perfect happiness rising before us as you see the islands rise out of the sea Hawaii is a beautiful land, dearest, a land that has no yesterdays. Are we to miss all that awaits us there, all that makes life worth living, because we fear chattering tongues two thousand miles behind us? No, 
Dear one, we must both sail on the Manchuria. He stopped, seeking a glimpse of her averted face. Why must you go? she asked, her head still bowed. There is serious labor trouble on the sugar plantation. Michaels cabled me this afternoon. It is absolutely imperative for me to return at once, and the Manchuria tomorrow morning is the only steamer this month. I have taken passage, and I can't, I won't, leave you behind. Will you go, Marianne? Slowly she shook her head. This, then, is the end, Don, she said. You know I can't go, and you know, too, her voice was now bitterly resentful, that life will be a hideously empty thing to me after the Manchu sails in the morning. But I can't go. I'm tied here with bonds that can't be broken, by me. Do you mean that, Marianne? She hesitated and brushed a hand quickly across her eyes, then nodded silently. If you do, he continued, betraying the bitterness of his disappointment, it proves one of two things. Either you are a coward afraid to risk a momentary sacrifice to buy a lifetime of happiness, or deep in your heart you still love your husband. Which is it? Do you care for Wilmerding? Has my love been no more than a toy to amuse you in the idle hours? How can you ask that, Don? she asked quickly. You know it hasn't. And as for my husband, she stopped and stood staring down into the fire, her face altering with each of the many swiftly changing emotions. At last she looked up and into the eyes of the man beside her. I did love Martin Wilmerding once, she said. Sometimes I have thought that if the past two years could be blotted out, forgotten, I might love him again even yet. But now, today, tonight, I do not love him. That is my answer, Don Lavelle. Tonight I do not love him. How long has it been since you thought you might care for him again? Lavelle demanded jealously. Since you came into my life and taught me to care for you. He stooped over her eagerly. You tell me that and expect me to leave you here? he whispered. Never. In saying you love me, you have decided. Come, Marion, come. For a second their eyes met. His were eager, ardent, passionately tender. To a woman grown reckless through neglect, they pleaded his cause better than words. She crouched by the vanishing fire, weighing her problem. Behind her, Lavelle, intuitively avoiding speech, awaited her verdict. From his hiding-place Boston Blackie watched, forgetful for a moment, of why he was there. Minutes passed, minutes in which Marion Wilberding, choosing her future at diverging crossroads, relived her life. The years behind her flitted one by one through her mind years she saw as a nightmare of steadily growing disillusionment. She had loved big, handsome, debonair Martin Wilberding when they were married. As a suitor he had stood out alone among many men who had asked for her hand. They had been very happy at first, were still happy when their boy was born. 
When and how had the present gulf between them grown? Memory told her. It had begun when she found the romance-haloed suitor she had married slowly altering into a husband who regarded her love as an irrevocably given possession requiring neither attention nor the refreshing nourishment of tender response. Time widened the breach. She had been morose, petulant. He had not understood and had withdrawn more and more into a cycle of interests in which she had no share. She, hiding her wound, retaliated by plunging into the feverish gaiety of ultra-smart society. For many months they had lived as strangers, never meeting except occasionally at dinner. And now she was facing the inevitable result, listening to the pleas of a man for whom she had confessed her love, urging her to leave home and husband. What was the answer? Her throat tightened in an aching pain as her eye fell on the thin gold band that encircled a slender finger. Martin Wilburning had stooped to kiss that hand and ring on the day it was first placed there. Dear little wife, he had said, that ring is the symbol of a bond that will never be broken by me. Throughout all the years before us, whenever I see it, this hour will return, bringing back all the love and devotion that is in my heart now. Recollection of the long-forgotten words swept her with a sudden revulsion of feeling, and she sprang to her feet. In that instant she realized for the first time why she had come to love Don Lavelle. It was because in his fresh, ardent, impulsive devotion he was so much like Martin Wilberding, who had kissed her hand and ring with a vow of lifetime fealty that had left her clinging to him in tearful ecstasy. Don, she said, if you really love me, go, now, now. Lavelle's arms, eagerly outstretched toward her, dropped to his side. It was not the answer he had awaited so confidently. A vague resentment against her tinged his disappointment with new bitterness. That is final, is it, Marion? he asked. Yes, yes, don't make it harder for me, she cried almost hysterically. He slipped into his overcoat. Perhaps you will tell me why, he suggested with increasing asperity. Because of the boy and this, the woman said brokenly, laying a finger on her wedding ring. Nonsense, he cried angrily. What tie does that ring represent that Martin Wilberding has not violated a hundred times? You have been faithful to it, we know, even though you admit you care for me. But has he? I have not had the pleasure of your husband's acquaintance, but no man ever neglected a wife like you as outrageously as he has done, without a reason. Go, please, quickly, she pleaded, shivering. I will he said, instinctively avoiding the blunder of combating her decision with argument. He caught her in his arms, and stooped quickly, kissing her on the lips. She reeled away from him, sobbing. Our first and last kiss. Good-bye, Marion, he said gently, and left the room. She followed, 
clutching at the walls for support as she watched him from the doorway. He adjusted his muffler and caught up his hat without a backward glance, and she pressed her two hands to her lips to choke back a cry. Then, as he opened the outer door, the crushing misery of her loneliness swept over her, overpowering self-restraint and resolution. Don! Oh, Don! she pleaded, stumbling toward him with outstretched arms. In a second, he was at her side, and she was crying against his breast. I can't let you go, she sobbed. I tried, but I can't. Take me, Don. I will do as you wish. From his hiding place, Blackie saw them re-enter the room. The woman stopped by the fireplace, drew off the wedding ring, and after holding it a second between shaking fingers, dropped it into the ashes. Dead and gone, she said, dead as the love of the man who put it on my finger. My ring will replace it, with triumph in his eyes. Wilberding will want a divorce. He shall have it. And then you'll wear the wedding ring of the man who loves you and whom you love, the only ring in the world that shouldn't be broken. Don, promise me that you will never leave me alone, she pleaded falteringly. I don't ever want a chance to think, to reflect, to regret. I only want to be with you and forget everything else in the world. Promise me. Love like mine knows no such word as separation, he answered. From this hour we will never be apart. Don't fear regrets, Marion. There will be none. My boy, she suggested, he will go with us? Poor little Martin. I wouldn't leave him behind fatherless and motherless. Of course not, he agreed. And now you must get a few necessities together quickly. Just the things you will require on the steamer. You can get all you need when we reach Honolulu. But there is no time for anything now, for under the circumstances it is best that we go aboard the steamer before morning. Can you be ready in an hour? In an hour? she cried in surprise. Yes, I can, but... But how do we get aboard the steamer tonight? We can't, Don. Your passage is booked, but not mine. My passage is booked for Don Lavelle and wife, he informed her, smiling. She turned away her head to hide the flush that colored her face. You were so sure as that, she murmured with a strangely new sense of disappointment. Yes, Lavelle answered for I knew love like that could not fail to win yours. Will you pack a single trunk while I run back to my hotel and get my own things together? I can be back in an hour or less. Will you be ready? Yes, I will be ready, she promised wearily. I will only take a few things. I want nothing that my husband ever gave me. I shall only take a few of my own things and the jewels in the safe that were in my mother's collection. They are my own, and they're very valuable. It will not be safe to risk packing them in my baggage. I'll get them now, and give them to you to keep, until we can leave them in the purser's safe tomorrow. Be very careful with them, Don. They couldn't be replaced for a fortune. Boston Blackie saw her hurry to the wall, saw the sliding door roll back. With a quickly indrawn breath, he watched the woman fumble nervously with the combination dial. 
the safe door swung open, and she rapidly sorted out a half a dozen jewel cases from the safe. Here they are, Don, she said, handing the gems to Lavelle. I have taken only those that came from my own people, and now you must leave me. I must pack, and I can't call the servants under these circumstances. I must get the boy up and ready. And also, she hesitated a second, and then added, I must write a note to Mr. Wilberding, telling him what I have done and why. Don't mail it until we are at the dock, warned the man. Where is he? At his club or out of town? He's at the Del Monte Hotel near Monterey. Or was, she answered. The letter won't reach him until tomorrow night. And tomorrow night we will be far out of sight of land, Lavelle cried. That is as it should be. I am glad I never met him. For now I need never do so. He stuffed the jewel cases into his overcoat. I'll be back in my car in an hour, he warned. Hurry, Marion, my love. Every minute until I am with you again will be a day. He caught up his hat and ran down the steps to the street, where his car stood at the curbstone. As the door closed behind him, Marion Wilmerdink sank into a chair and clutched her throat to stifle choking sobs. Intuitively, womanly fear of what she was to do paralyzed her. For many minutes she lay shaking convulsively as she tried to overcome the dread that chilled her heart. Then the dismal atmosphere of the masterless home began to oppress her with a sense of wretched loneliness. She rose, and with hard, reckless eyes shining hotly from beneath wet lashes, she ran upstairs to pack, as she had promised. As Donald Lavelle threw open the door of his empty car, a man who had slipped behind him around the corner of the Wilberdick residence stepped to his side. I'm sorry to have to trouble you for your wife's jewels, Lavelle, he said. The triumphant smile on Lavelle's face faded, and he shrank back in speechless consternation. Your wife's jewels, he ejaculated, trying to recover from the shock of the utterly unexpected interruption. You are? Yes, I am Martin Wilberding, and the happy chance that brought me home tonight also gave me the pleasure of listening from the window seat of the living room to your interesting tete-a-tete -tete with my wife. A gun flashed into Boston Blackie's hand and was jabbed sharply into Lavelle's ribs. Give me Marion's jewels, the pseudo-husband cried. Hand them over before I blow your heart out. That's what I ought to do, and I may anyway. Lavelle handed over the cases that contained the Wilmerding collection of gems. Now, continued his captor, I want a word with you. A gun was thrust so savagely into Lavelle's face that it left a long red bruise. I have heard all you said tonight. I know all your plans for stealing away my wife, the inexorable voice continued. You are dealing with a man, not a woman, from now on. And if you phone, write, 
telegraph, or ever again communicate in any way with Marion, I'll blow your worthless brains out if I have to follow you around the world to do it. Do you get that, Mr. Don Lavelle? I understand you, said Lavelle helplessly. Again the gun muzzle bruised the flesh of his cheek. And as a last kindly warning, Lavelle, Blackie continued, I suggest that you take extreme precautions to see that you do not miss the Manchuria when she sails in the morning, because if you are not on board, you won't live to see another sunset if I have to kill you in your own club. Will you sail or die? I'll sail. Very well. That's all that requires words between us, I believe. Go, and remember your life is in your own hands. One word of any kind to Marion, and you forfeit it. I don't know why I don't kill you now. I would if it were not for the scandal all this would cause when it came out before the jury that would acquit me. Now go. Lavelle pressed the button that started the motor as Boston Blackie stepped back from his side. I've just one word I want to say to you, Wilmerding, Lavelle began, his foot on the clutch. It's this. You have only yourself to blame. Don't accuse Marion. You forced her into a situation you discovered this evening, but your neglect of the finest little woman I ever met was forced into it by a love I admit frankly. Don't blame Marion for what you yourself have caused. I won't ever see or communicate with her again. You have my word for that. That's the most decent speech I have heard from your lips tonight, said the man beside the car, dropping his gun back into an outside pocket. I don't blame her. I've learned many important facts tonight, one of which is that the right place for a man is in his own home with his own wife. I'm going to remember that, and the wedding ring that was dropped into the ashes tonight is going back on the finger it fits. Good night. Lavelle, without a word, threw out the clutch, and his car sped away, and was enveloped and hidden by the fog. Halfway down the block, Boston Blackie came to another car standing at the curb, with a well-muffled chauffeur sitting behind the wheel. As he climbed in, the driver uttered a low, thankful cry. "'Where have you been so terribly long?' she said, reaching out to clasp his hand. "'I was getting frightfully nervous about you, Blackie, particularly since those people went in. What happened? Did you get the jewels? Did you have any trouble?' "'No trouble. I have the jewels here. Feel the packages.' And a whole lot happened, answered Blackie with deep satisfaction. I've a new story to tell you when we get home, Mary. It's the story of a big burglar named Blackie, and a little boy named Martin Wilberding, and a still littler woolly dog named Rex, and a woman who guessed wrong. I think it will interest you. Let's go. I have several things to do before we go home. When they reached the downtown district, Blackie had Mary drive him to the Palace Hotel. There he sought out the night stenographer. "'Will you take a telegram for me, please?' he said. 
Then he dictated. To Martin Wilberding, Del Monte Hotel, Monterey. The boy needs you. I do too. Please come. Marion. Though there was a telegraph office in the hotel, it summoned a messenger boy from the saloon and sent the message. Then he went to another hotel and found a second stenographer to whom he dictated a second message. Miss Marion Wilberding, 3420 Broadway, San Francisco. The packages you gave me were what I really wanted. Thank you, and goodbye. D.L. Summoning another boy, he sent the second message from a different telegraph office. Those telegrams and how they came to be sent will be a mystery in the Wilmerding home to the end of time, he thought, deeply contented. Let's go home, Mary, he said then, returning to his car and climbing in. I think I've finished my night's work, and I don't believe I've done such a bad job either. He was silent for a moment. I've given a wife to a husband, he said, half to himself. I've given a father to a child. I've given a mother the right to look her son in the face without shame. I've played square with the gamest little pal I ever want to know, Martin Wilberding, Jr., and his dog Rex. And, for my pay, I've taken the Wilberding jewel collection. I wonder who's the debtor. The End of Boston Blackie's Little Pal by Jack Boyle. Oh, I love a good story. And that, that was just splendid. Uh, the, the gentleman thief and safecracker and jewel thief, sort of like Arsène Lupin, the uh, French gentleman thief that was popular in literature at the time. Boston Blackie later came on and was still remained this tough guy, this jewel thief, with a heart of gold. His Wikipedia entry refers to him as an enemy to those who make him an enemy, friend to those who have no friend. Uh, there were 14 Columbia movies between 1941 and 1949, and indeed, an old-time radio series of which perhaps sometime we will delve into uh, in 1944 on NBC. Um, uh, here's a little background. Writer Jack Boyle grew up in Chicago, Illinois, while working as a newspaper reporter in San Francisco. He became an opium addict, which, wow, uh, was drawn into crime and was jailed for writing bad checks. Later convicted of robbery, Boyle was serving a term in San Quentin when he created the character of Boston Blackie. The first four stories appeared in the American Magazine in 1914, with Boyle writing under the pen name number 6066. Um, from then on, his stories appeared in the Red Book Magazine, and from 1918 were adapted for motion pictures. That 1918 story we just heard was in June 19, 
2018's Red Book magazine, a little after his career as number 6066, but that was, what, four, eight, the ninth story of the series. And, yep, these, these are just great stories, and you can dig. There was even a TV story, a series, rather. Uh, uh, Zim produced it, and Zim produced some really cool um, pre-packaged TV stories in the early 50s. It ran for 58 episodes, and that probably means, I would guess, uh, let's take a look here on YouTube, so long as we're taking a minute here and uh, appreciating Boston Blackie. Let's see what comes up here. Boston Blackie, come home. Yep, there's Boston Blackie movies, 12 hours of the old radio shows, and, uh, yep, episodes of the TV series. Um, Let's see how big this playlist is. Oh, my. Yeah, a whole bunch. And... Yeah, there were two seasons, and it's got some other stuff there. Uh, some Chester Morris movies. Yeah, Chester Morris, who played Boston Blackie, played similar characters throughout his film career. So, yeah, and uh, crime seems to be the theme, because uh, I read a crime story in a recent appreciator with a character called The Man of a Thousand Faces, uh, no doubt at least somewhat inspired by Lon Chaney, who, of course, was a horror actor. Although, I guess Lon Chaney isn't as well-known as when I came up and followed horror movies and the great stars of horror. Um, He was the original Phantom of the Opera, in case you didn't know, played Eric, the tragic man who lives in the bowels of the Opera House in Paris with his disfigured face and his love for a singer. What a great story. And Lon Chaney's, well, today it's considered over the top, but his acting was a hallmark for the silent era. And he was literally a man of a thousand faces, a master of makeup and also body movement because he had grown up with uh, deaf parents. So he sort of learned to express himself through movement, which made him perfect for silent films, and unfortunately, he only made one sound film, a remake of his film, The Unholy Three, which if you get to see it, it is quite a curio and quite an interesting film. Um, He plays multiple roles in that, but he was originally supposed to play Dracula, and when he passed on, an untimely death from cancer back in 1930. Bella Lugosi wound up getting the role as Dracula. Um, just all kinds of cool, triviatic stuff that we can get into here on The Appreciator once I turn on the triveline uh, to explain the fascination and the entertainium. It's all a very complicated process here on The Appreciator. Let's listen to this together. And now, the makers of grime, the magic shortening that spreads like lard, invite you to join us for another episode of The Gathering Dusk. 
As we look in on the Bessinger household today, Edna is still bedridden. It's late afternoon, and Mr. Fairfax, the crusading editor of the Red Boiling Springs newspaper, is just entering the room. Oh, crusading editor Fairfax. It was good of you to come over so quickly. Well, I consider myself a public servant, Edna. When you called, I felt it my duty to come. After all, you've been a loyal subscriber to the Red Boiling Springs Weekly Clarion and Express Herald for a good many years now. Yes, I always get a lot of enjoyment out of your paper. All except the crossword puzzles. I do get pretty peeved about them. Well, what's wrong with our crossword puzzles? We haven't had any other complaints. Well, they just have words in them that no one could possibly know. Now, last week, a five-letter word for South American anteater. My lands, this is a Midwestern farming community. Did you ever see a South American anteater around here? No. Well, I suppose they're all in South America. Well, that's what I mean. I must have asked five or six people about that word, and not one of them knew. You should stick to pigs and cows and sheep and things like that. Well, of course, most people use a dictionary or an encyclopedia for words they don't know in crossword puzzles. Well, that seems like cheating to me. I remember Daddy used to work crossword puzzles, and he'd never, never use a dictionary. I also remember that your father would call me up in the middle of the night whenever he'd get stuck on a crossword puzzle. He was a queer duck. I always looked upon him as a leading citizen. I'll never forget the time he put window boxes on that Pierce arrow of his. Then he'd have to stop driving the thing because geraniums grew up in front of the windshield and he couldn't see out. Well, he was a little bit eccentric about some things, I suppose. Yes, he was. But I'm sure you didn't call me over here just to talk about your father, Edna. Is there something I can do for you? Yes, there is, crusading editor Fairfax. I know how your paper has been campaigning against gambling houses in this county, and I thought you should know that there's one of them going full tilt right upstairs over my room. Oh, that's impossible, Edna. There's nothing above this room except an attic. There isn't even a stairway leading up to it. I hear the dice rolling up there every night, sometimes until three or four in the morning. Well, it must be squirrels rolling acorns across the floor. Everybody in town knows you have squirrels in your attic. My lands, I'll bet that's what it is. Well, you've really taken a tremendous load off my mind, crusading editor Fairfax. <laughs> I almost feel as if I'm no longer standing in the gathering dusk. Ladies, is nothing worse than a shortening that's filled with little pieces of fur and steel filings. That's why you'll go for grime, the magic shortening that spreads like lard. Try some today and be sure to join us next time when Edna goes to the village in the gathering dusk. And back around to humor, but we are going to get back to crime momentarily. Well, maybe a few moments. Um, I'm still digging around these old TV guides. And this time around, we're going to look and quote uh, an article written by Robert Higgins in the March 23rd, 1968 TV guide. And after we've all handled a TV guide and sort of understand that the glossy pages on either end of the TV guide are national and everybody gets them. And the newsprint ones in the middle are the ones that have the TV listings for the local area. This is out of a Northern California TV guide. Um, I'm dying to find more uh, old 
East Coast, especially the New York TV market ones, because that's like that that was my that's my TV. Other people got similar fare, but we had the independent channels like WOR, the TV uh, version of the station that Gene Shepard was on, which showed great. It was owned by RKO and it showed great old movies, had talk shows and a very unique type of uh, programming. Uh, I think the Merry Marvel Marching Society, the Marvel superhero cartoons used to be on there. But it was an oddball channel. And I have to admit, I, it wasn't one of the staples. The staples for me were Channel 11, WPIX, which had a great morning and after-school kids type of show, which we won't go into what some other time, perhaps. And WNEW, pretty much the same. And Saturday mornings on WNEW, we had a show called Wonderama, which was this three-hour, three-hour-plus maybe even, um, hosted show with uh, kids, local kids would come and compete in all kinds of contests and games and be sort of like a, a peanut gallery, if you're familiar with Howdy Doody, which, let's face it, all of these shows are now, it's what old people uh, watch. But this article is called Mickey Mouse, Where Are You? And uh, it's looking at the new Saturday morning shows and what kids are watching and refers to them as a new breed of weirdo superheroes. Uh, let me quote some of this as they go over the big ones here. And remember, this is 1968, where all of these superheroes, um, the comic book ones and made-up ones for Saturday morning cartoons, were still not your mainstream pop culture figures. For example, the Fantastic Four are led by scientist Reed Richards, who stretches like taffy. The queer quartet includes Reed's wife, Sue, who keeps vanishing into thin air. The invisible girl, of course. Teenager Johnny, who flames up like a can of sterno. And The Thing. The Thing's thing is to be ugly, since he resembles a demolished Edsel. God. And uh, then... Let's keep going with these descriptions. These are great. Spider-Man is a born loser named Peter Parker, beset with job worries and usually bedded down with a cold. Peter nevertheless is compelled to slip into a grotesque spider suit to polish off villains. And then there's Birdman, who later came back as, uh, not Cartoon Network, an adult swim satire. If they revived the character, if I if he, Harvey Birdman, and he was a lawyer for uh, other superheroes, but uh, he resembles a tarred and feathered Charles Atlas with wings, saved from a fiery death by a sun god, sun god, a sun god. Birdman flies around pulverizing the baddies with solar power. Ooh, that spooky solar power. Space Ghost is the only bona fide spook in the crowd. He's a space cruising crime fighter, but thanks to a magic belt which renders him invisible, this animated apparition is out of sight a lot of the time. 
Yes, very uh, hippie there. Did she get the plan? Out of sight, man, far out. And yes, Space Ghost, of course, also became a revised character uh, hosting his own talk show on uh, Adult Swim. And I think even the Cartoon Network before there was an Adult Swim. And then there was Super President, a, a who has not been brought back. I, I won't even speculate on what they could do with Super President. But Super President is a guess, that is, when he's not transforming himself into solid rock or something. But whatever shape the chief executive is in, he has a dandy way of dealing with villains. He just zooms off and beats the tar out of them. That's right. When's the last time you heard that turn? Beating the tar out of somebody. And the weirdo superheroes and supervillains have catapulted TV cartoons into a multi-million dollar business. Uh, the top-rated shows can pull in as many as 14 million kids, and sponsors were paying up to $9,750 a minute to sell their wares. Now think about that in terms of 1968 money. Hanna-Barbera at the time, uh, which ground out about half of those shows, kept 300 employees working year-round. Just an amazing thing. And uh, two years ago, it says, the networks were filling the morning with reruns of Lassie, Dennis the Menace, Mighty Mouse, Alvin, and uh, now it's just this huge, huge boom. And um, it's here that the influence of Marvel Comics came into play. Marvel has become the champ of the comic book game. 50 million books a year, which a high number of them are selling to college kids. They introduced, according to this, the weirdo superhero. Stan Lee is quoted as saying, superheroes, we revitalize them. For the starters, uh, they gave heroes hangups. Stan Lee quoted again. So what if a hero is the strongest being on earth? Doesn't he also have acne, sinus trouble, and problems dating girls? And true, that simple formula back in the day, you know, you had Superman and Batman who may have had a problem, but they didn't have problems. Uh, this is just a great little article. And there's something about the violence and children's uh, watching, which, of course, was a big concern in the day. And... Then they even go through uh, Dr. Wertheim, who uh, was responsible for the comic book code and censoring the horror and the violence of the uh, early 50s cartoons. And uh, they do talk about this was when they were beginning to pull physical violence out. And yes, these uh, superhero cartoons of the day, these weird superheroes, there isn't too much actual graphic violence. And now, well, it's come back a little, but I think on the networks, they still have to be very gentle. And I haven't watched what's going on. I don't think there is Saturday morning cartoons per se anymore. But growing up, that was just the thing. You woke up early on a Saturday morning and there would be like four, five hours of just stuff made for kids that was only shown on Saturday mornings. I mean, some of it would eventually reach your afternoon and morning programs that I talk about. But, and there was no VHS. 
there were no videotapes you could rent. Saturday morning was it. You got up and you watched your cartoons. And yeah, no doubt I'm going to talk more about cartoons because and kid TV shows. The, this is my bread and butter in the back of my deranged, nostalgic head. And yes, I am an incurable nostalgist for my own past and the stuff that fascinated me that came before. Like uh, shows like this. This we're going to hear an episode of Pat Novak for Hire, uh, another great detective show of the day. The Golden Age of Radio. The American Broadcasting Company presents Pat Novak for Hire. Sure, I'm Pat Novak for Hire. I got a couple of boats down on Pier 19 on the San Francisco waterfront. Sometimes I rent them out, but I found out it's easier to keep my budget healthy by risking my health in other ways. So I work around doing odd jobs. You can take that any way you like. Not the best you can say for it is that it beats begging. At least you don't always limp. If your luck's in, you can keep a half lap ahead of the bill collectors if you don't let it go to your head. I did once. I helped a guy who owned seven hotels convince a blonde in San Rafael that her memory wasn't that good after all. The payoff was too rich for my blood. I got the idea that with that kind of money, I could take over the gambling joints up around Lake Tahoe. It took them three days to show me I was wrong. I'd worked my way down from the gold-plated joints to a place called the Broken Tea, where they still recognized a dollar as currency. I was beginning to figure how long it'd take me to walk back to the bay when the help came along. He was a little guy with a pair of eyes I wouldn't trust with anything I wanted again. The kind of quiet, dark clothes that'd make it easy to get lost in an alley. He knew me. Well, Novak, not doing so hard, are you? I eat. You want to make a quick buck? There must be a reason. Tell me that first. I'm hot. I shook the wheels down for a flock of dough. You call that trouble? Not yet. But I'd like to look ahead. How do I know these guys like it that I got all their money? If it hurts you, give it back. They'll take it. I got a better idea. I want to take it down to San Francisco. Look... Crocker owns the Southern Pacific. If you got an urge to travel, talk to him. If you got a proposition, spread it out. I'm driving down. It's a lonely road. I want you to go along as a bodyguard. If these guys are out to hijack your role, two of us won't stop them any more than one. They come in bunches when they want to. Do you want the job, or are you going to talk me out of it? I'll ride down with you. For 200 bucks. You charge a lot for a ride. You said it's risky, remember? Okay, just 50 you get the rest in San Francisco. I see you outside in five minutes. My name's Brown. I'll be waiting in my car. Brown, huh? Yeah, Brown. John Brown. Want to make something of it? How can you?
quiet guy. We drove along for a couple of hours, and you could have repeated all he said on one deep breath. I kept watching the cars along the road, waiting for the muscle boys to show up, but nothing happened. Pretty soon I got the feeling that they weren't after him at all. I guess he'd seen too many movies. I finished off a pack of cigarettes as we got down out of the mountains and got him to stop at a roadside joint for reloads. He wouldn't leave the car, so I was all alone when a girl came up to me at the bar. You going down to San Francisco? Uh, something like that. You got room for me? How far are you going? That depends on who I'm with. It might be handy at that. Cars without a heater. I don't have the owners. So you'll keep one hand on the wheel. So you better ask the guy who does. He's sitting out in the car. Why don't he come in? Don't build him up so fast. I got a car, too. Where'd you get it? Steal it? You selling medical insurance, maybe? Why? You're going to need it if you keep elbowing into my face. Speaking of elbows, what do you mean trying to muscle in on my dame? Uh, you two together? Yeah. Why? That's what I've been wondering. Why? So long, sucker. What do you make of that? I'd say you're out. You don't have to slide. You're to blame for this. Yeah. And tomorrow I'm going to make it rain. I can start a storm right now. Go right ahead. You've got the wind. Well, you... you cooled him nice, stranger. What started that? Bad habits. Yeah? Uh-huh. Too many cigarettes. <laughs> I guess I didn't have to hit the guy, but I was all geed up over the ride. I had to take it out on somebody. Outside, the air was cold and clear. The river made soothing noises in the darkness. I figured it'd be an easy night from then on in, but Brown was having the fidgets. Come on, Novak. Let's get going. Where's the dame? What dame? One came out here, a hitchhiker. Wanted to ride to town. I didn't see any dame. Come on, let's go. Oh, that's queer. What's queer? Let's go, let's go. Oh, suddenly you're nervous. What's the matter? When I need a doctor, Novak, I know where to find one. Yeah? Well, can you find one whose shakes synchronize with yours? Otherwise, he's going to have a tough time with your pulse. From there on into town, John Brown didn't say a word. When we came across the Bay Bridge, he stopped in the terminal and made a phone call. Then we drove up to his place, a big corner apartment house up near the Civic Center. He told me to wait in the car while he went in to put away the money. I sat and smoked cigarettes and watched the dawn begin to light up the long, empty streets. I must have been there half an hour before anything happened. And then it all began to happen at once, starting with Hellman a homicide detective with a grudge against the world that he takes out on me. I hope I didn't keep you waiting, Novak. Well, I got you out of bed, Hellman. Can't be insomnia. That takes conscience. You'd be the sort to know about that. Mind if I let the car over? Uh, why not? I didn't steal this one. I prefer Roadster. John Brown, huh? Now, there's a name. Where have I heard that before? That's a foreign name. Polish, I think. That's not where I heard it. It was broadcast in connection with a stolen car. Uh-uh. Try again. The keys, see? So maybe he was careless and left his keys in his car. Yeah, maybe I'm whimsical and changed my name to Brown. Go on, Hellman. You can't pin anything on me. No. Give me the keys. Yeah, what for? I'm looking in the trunk. We got a tip. Not on this crate. We just got in from Tahoe. Nobody knows we're here. Sure, sure. And if you aren't here, I guess there's nothing in the trunk either. 
right. What'd you find? A body. A girl's body. I'm not intruding, am I? Not on me. You better get Brown. He's in the apartment there. Sure. But won't you be lonely? Look, Brown hired me to ride down from Tahoe with him. He cleaned up at the tables and water protection for his role. It's his car and his girl. Let's get him. All right, come on. Oh, Brown listed. Nervous. Upset. Maybe you need a rest. Framed. Sure, somebody else did it. Shame on them. Come on, Nova. The girl was a pickup, a hitchhiker. Why should he kill her? I got a better question for you. Where can I get a lawyer? I saw a purse with the body. Let's look it over. Don't tell me you didn't rob her, too. The purse didn't turn up much. Some keys, a little mad money, makeup stuff. A letter to Alice Stone with an address out in the Potrero district. The letter was no good, just a guy trying to patch up a split. I had a hunch that Brown must have known Alice. That was the only way the killing made sense. I needed to get some dope on Brown. I needed to know about Alice. Hellman took Brown's address off the registration card, and I couldn't see where that had helped me any. No one had seen us together all the way down from Tahoe. Even if Brown were picked up, he could swear he'd never seen me before. With the car listed as stolen, he was a cinch to prove it. Now, I needed help bad. So I started looking for my old friend Jocko Madigan, an ex-doctor turned boozer who had more connections around town than the water department. I ran him down in a trap on Ellis Street trying to hold back the recession in liquor sales. Hello, Patsy, my boy. Join me. This is the first one today. Look, I'm in trouble, Jocko. You're in trouble. Think how I feel. Uh, what's the matter? Sick? No, just worried. I was reading in the paper here that the good ship Clyde Harris went down off the New England coast uh, last night with 10,000 cases of scotch on board. Yeah, there's some left. Listen, Jocko, I'm in a jam. When did that become news? I was up at Tahoe, and a guy hired me to drive him down here. He didn't know you. It turns out the car is stolen, and there's a body in it. And the guy's disappeared. I don't blame him. The body belonged to a girl named Alice Stone at this address. 10,000 cases of scotch. Can you imagine that? Oh. And the way I figure it, the girl must have known the killer. I'm not very sure that John Brown, who claims his car was stolen, is innocent either. It's mighty strange that he left the car keys lying around. What'd you want me to do? Get on the grapevine. Find out if this John Brown is tied up in the rackets. The same for Alice Stone. Find out if they ran around with each other. Whatever you can about him. All right, Patsy, but you'll have to wait. I've got to catch up on my drinking first. Can't you lay off this stuff for a little while? Are you telling me how to live my life again? You who consort with murderers, car thieves, and women of dubious ways? Push the bottle over here. Look, Jocko. See if you can put the finger on a neat little guy with a pair of con man's eyes. Black hair, toy mustache, and dresses like Dapper Dan. About 150 pounds. Imagine you trying to tell me how to live. You who've got more bad habits than a dope cleans convention. The guy goes for dark, expensive clothes. He doesn't talk much unless he has to. When I drink, I get the hangover. All you have to do is breathe regularly and troubles all over town. You had any social conscience, you'd go somewhere and hang yourself. I can't understand how I tolerate having you around. Will you get a line on the guy for me? From the way you described him, it ought to be a lay-down cinch. There's only about 10,000 men in town who'd fit that description. Will a hundred or so of them be enough? I want one. It's a long gamble. But try, will you, Jocko? Imagine that, with the ocean full of ships hauling guano, bones, cattle, oil, lumber, pineapple, sugar, old newspapers, and gunny sacks. The one boat that has to sink... Will you get on it? There's no hurry. It's only you at stake. 
So long, lover. I grabbed some breakfast, picked up a cab, and went out to the address of Alice Stone. It matched a wooden house that looked two years older in Utah that was trying to lie about it with a new plaster front and a fresh set of doorknobs. It looked like it had been built by an amateur who read the blueprints upside down. A dame answered the door. She was about tie pin high to a six-footer, and she had red hair. The heavy, wavy kind that made you think she must be healthy. But that wasn't hard to do anyway. The way she filled out her morning coat didn't leave much to worry about. Except the scenes. She could talk, too. Hmm. Neighborhood's improving. You know Alice Stone? Sure, she lives here. I might have known she'd see you first. Uh, who are you? My name's Skip Harper. And, uh, Alice isn't home. What can you do with that? How do you know I want to? Maybe I'm a salesman. Well, look, mister. You aren't fooling anybody. You look about as much like a salesman as I do a decoy duck. Now, uh, what do you want with Alice or, uh... Do you have to be particular? I can't use her. She's dead. A salesman. With five o'clock shadow at ten... You say dead. Yeah. They found her in a car downtown this morning. You're a cop. No, you're wrong. Why should it worry you? What do you mean? You know who did it? I don't know anything. I just don't like jams. Tell me how it happened. We were coming down from Tahoe. She was in a roadside hamburger trap. She asked me for a ride, and I sent her out to talk to a guy who owns the car. The next time I saw her, she was tucked away in the trunk. Why'd a guy kill her? Just like that. That's what I'm after. Maybe he just didn't like James. There's probably a better reason. You think maybe he knew her? Yeah. That's where you can earn a gold star. Did you know anybody by the name of John Brown? Describe him. He was playing the wheel at the Broken Tea up near Tahoe. Smooth little guy, about two sizes over a jockey. Wax mustache, a pair of eyes you could use to freeze fish. Ah, so... That one. All right. I know him. Give me an introduction. His name's Brown, all right. I didn't know his first name before. He's a small-time hustler around town. Used to take Alice out now and then, when he felt like tearing up a nightclub. Cops arrest him yet? Hellman, a homicide dick, is knocking on his door about now. I don't expect him to be home. No, he won't be. He has hideouts. Name some of them. Uh-uh. I'm afraid to. He can't hurt you. He's too busy playing cops and robbers. You don't know Brown. I gotta get to know him. Give. I don't want to get mixed up in anything. Neither do I, but I am. I need Brown. Why don't you forget Brown? I'd be bad manners. What's wrong with bad manners? I know some that are fun. Yeah, you would. More fun than Brown will ever show you. You keep. He won't. Come here. Will this keep? Your thing? You have a nice way of changing the subject. But still, where's Brown's hideout? I won't tell you. He'll kill me. Yeah, that's a gamble. I'm on the spot, and that's a fact. Talk to me. I hate men. Oh, never mind your hobby. Give me Brown. I hate you, you big, ugly, muscle-bound. Brown. You're hurting me. Make me stop. Tell me where Brown is. All right. He has a hideout, a little shack out near the beach. No, it down. Let go, I'm telling you. But I hope it's the last thing you hear. <laughs> From Skip's place out to the beach wasn't much of a drive. I went up and over Twin Peaks watching the city and the bay spread out beneath the road like a giant map. 
The sun was working for the Chamber of Commerce that day, and the whole region was glowing. Every backyard was full of clothes blowing in the wind. As the highway neared the beach, it began to turn up bunches of kids on their way to cash in on the weather. John Brown's hideaway was one of those old pioneer shacks built out near the ocean in the old days by guys who wanted to get away from it all. It was painted a weather-beaten brown, tilted a little on one side, and it looked like something that had been washed ashore in a bad storm a long while ago. I knocked on the door, but all that bought me was echoes, so I made a door out of one of the side windows. The inside of the place looked like something out of a hobo jungle. None of the furniture matched. The best piece in sight would have made a junk man sneer. There was a broken-down setup for poker and a tired double bed, and after that you were practically on your own. The kitchen didn't turn up anything but a flock of ants and some empty bottles. I began to get the feeling Brown must have had two hideouts or else he'd left town. It shows you how wrong you can be. All right, Hustler, reach. You walk soft. Practice makes perfect. Turn around slowly. Mm -hmm. How come you're working without a gun? Uh, Who are you? This is my place, so you tell me. My name's Novak. I'm looking for a guy named Brown. You're all right so far. I'm Brown. Who tipped you off I'd be here? I don't remember. No, you don't remember. So let me guess. It was that punk Venandi. Never heard of him. Never mind the rube routine. You got a hustler written all over you. What did Venandi send you here for? Does he think I know too much? Well, I was sent to rub you. Do you think I'd come without a gun? Start using your head. I like the way it's working. Tell me more. I can't tell you anything. You don't fit my blueprints. Don't get smart with me, Hustler. Fernandy sent you. Tell me what for. If you're brown, you don't need any new worries. You've got an arm full already. I'm feeling no pain. The cops have your car down at the station. What for? They don't like them with dead bodies inside. Now steady now. Let's have that again. A dame named Alice Stone was found stuffed in your trunk. You're hotter than four stoves. Laugh yourself out of that. If you know so much, why aren't you yelling copper? Don't worry, they're on their way. I'm trying to get the key to the killing. If this turns out to be a frame... Look, I saw the guy who did it. I'm the only one who did That's better than your gun, so treat me nice. If you saw the murder, you can help me out. Sure. What do I get for it, a merit badge? Things are coming too fast. I got to do some checking. You better spill what you know or else I'm liable to forget mine. You got a nice lever there, Hustler. If you can back up your talk. If the dame's dead. Look who's bargaining. Before I tell you anything, I need to check around. Just wait a while. The cops will tell you everything. I like to find out things for myself. You will. I got a good grapevine in a county jail. Now I'll do it the hard way. You forget I have the lever on you now. Yeah. Remind me to get scared about that. Try some aspirins for that. <laughs> I woke up twice before I decided to make it stay that way. The house was so quiet I could hear someone playing the piano several houses away. It was a nice, clean sound, neat and full of try. No wise guys in it figuring fancy double crosses. No dead bodies. No policemen who argued with their knuckles instead of their heads. Probably some girl who thought a blackjack was a card game. I lay there listening to the music for a while, and I got up and brushed out my clothes. There were three places I could find Brown. He wouldn't dare go to his home. He wouldn't return to the hideout. That left Skip's place. On the way over, I stopped at a drugstore and phoned Jocko to find out if he'd turned up anything. He left out the hiccups. It went like this. 
Hello, you reprobate renegade from all that's good and holy. Let's get the overture. Did you check on those people I asked you about? Sure, I found out about them. Old Dr. Madigan and his crystal ball. He knows all and he knows all and like that there. Tighten it up and tell me some. That girl Alice Stone, you remember? Uh, how can I forget? She lived with a dame in the Potrero named Skip Harper. Nice people. The landlord served eviction notices every day except legal holidays. Yeah, so they liked a good time, then what? Then she owns a half interest in a gambling joint around Lake Tahoe. It's not much of a place. They say the roulette wheels of so many magnets hung around them, the nails began to come out of the walls. Her partner runs the joint, and she shows the suckers in from down here. How'd you make it the wheels crooked? I have my informants. I have a network of good drinking folk who get around and hear things all the time. You'd be surprised how careless a guy can get with talk when he's got his elbow in a barroom ashtray. Now, as I was saying... If the wheels are fixed, how come Brown was able to shake the joint down for 50000 I don't know how he did it. Maybe he was wired, too. All I know is that they've got better control of the ball than Bob Feller ever had on his best day. It's easy to believe if you know Skip's partner. Yeah? Introduce me. Name's Benanti. What's that again? The partner's name's Benanti. He's wanted in eight states and Cuba. Benanti. I'll remember the name. How'd you get on Brown? John Brown? Oh, swell guy. Helped free the slaves. A friend of man. A tribute oh, to the I've nation. I've heard that song. Now let's talk about the local Brown. Uh, Small-time hustler. Petty larceny stuff. You didn't get any tie-ins with Vanatti? Oh, yeah. He was up at the gambling joint near Tahoe last night. Cleaned the place out. $50,000. I buy a lot of schnapps. Uh, it's beginning to fit together. No doubt your mighty intellect has found the key. I can count up to ten if I don't wear mittens. Sometimes thirteen, I'll bet. Well, who did what to whom? Brown's got a partner working for him. You don't say. I'm going over and shake it out of Brown. He must know where the guy's hiding. Well, don't go looking into too many auto trunks. Those things bite. So long, lover. What Jocko told me began to give me some hope. The thing the picture needed was one more man, and a partner for Brown would round it out nicely. Yeah, Brown must have figured someone to try to hijack his role and hired a friend to bring it down to San Francisco. I didn't explain the killing. I didn't explain a lot of things. But it was a lead to the guy who could explain it. I needed Brown. As I got the car over the hills towards Skip Harper's place, I began to feel better. I was thinking how Hellman would look when I dumped the killer in his lap. There was a crowd along the street in front of Skip's place. Just as I drew up, Hellman came out on the porch. As I got out of the car, one of the neighbors pointed to me. Novak, huh? They gave me a description, but I didn't think it was you. The guy they described sounded human. Your jokes stink, Hellman. Try imitating birds or juggling. The bird imitations are for you, Novak. You'll be singing to the DA any minute now. Come on in the house. Oh, it's Brown. Where's the dame? What did you do, kill her too? Come off it, Hellman. You can't pin this on me. I don't have to. The neighbors did it for me. Why should I kill my alibi? Because he wasn't. What did you do with the dame, Novak? Why don't you try thinking for a change? I do my poor best. For instance, I think you killed the dame in the car and then tried to saw it off on Brown. Then you caught Brown here this morning and killed him. What for? Or don't you care? For 50 grand, Brown won at the broken tea up at Lake Tahoe. The neighbors saw me come here. I must have seen Brown come here too, after I'd left. Nobody saw Brown come. Why didn't you buy a witness, Novak? You can afford it. The dame's gone? We haven't looked under the rugs. How'd you get the dope on Brown with all that dough? We phoned Tahoe, bright boy. We've heard about the telephone. Uh, vaguely. Who'd you talk to? The police. 
And then a guy named Bernardi. He says he remembers you following Brown out. And that the dame was with you, too. It's a lie. Sure, sure. But the 50,000 bucks are still missing. Brown wasn't with me. He was a little guy. It's the climate. He grew since you two dropped him here this morning. I need some pictures. Well, you drop Brown. The dame's going to drive you home. You proposition her on the way to help knock off Brown. She turns you down. Not those kind of pictures. Are there any photographs around the house? Yeah, there's some in the bedroom. Why? Come on, let's look. she looked, she'd like cameras. Here's one on the beach. What's she wearing? That's a bathing suit. Uh, Here's the one. Towel. Well, look at this nightclub gown. How do they hold those things up? Thumbtacks. Uh, So that's Benanti. Look at the two of them posing in front of their sucker trap. So what? He's the guy who did it. Sure, over the phone. Did you phone him or he phoned you? He phoned. You want him? What for? I got you. He's here in the city, hiding out at Brown's place at the beach. Here's the address. What kind of a windy is this, Novak? Pick him up, will you? He said he was at Tahoe, and he is in the city. It smashes his alibi. All right, but if you're trying any fancy work... Are you going after him, or do we... Well, some more. How to hold you. I'll be around, you know that. What are you going to do? I got some cleaning up to do. There was only one place for Benanti to be. I headed the car out the trail and down Bayshore Highway to the airport. I was betting everything on a hunch. Sometimes that's the way you have to play it. Sometimes hunches pay off. The plane I got was built for hurry. Skip still had her overnight bag in her hand when I walked in on them at the broken tee. Benanti began to act nervous when he saw me. Yeah, not Skip. I began to wonder if she'd ever known how it felt to be frightened. You'd never guess it from the way she talked. Hello, Novak. Don't you ever shave? <sighs> I had a close one just now. Oh, doesn't show. You don't know where to look. What do you want, Novak? I got it. Don't be cryptic, baby. It doesn't become you. Mm-hmm. You don't act nervous. Did you care about jail? Nobody's going to jail, Novak. Except you, maybe. I'd be nervous if I had explained all those dead bodies back in Frisco. We don't know anything about dead bodies. We've been up here for hours. Yeah? At a hunch, that'd be your alibi. That's no alibi, Novak. It's a fact. It won't gel, Benanti. You're cooked. Look, Novak. Brown deserved to die. He killed Allison. Before that, he fixed the wires on the wheel so he could break this place. He robbed us of $50,000. We had a right to get it back. Is that what Venanti told you? That's the way it happened, Novak. There's $10,000 in it for you, if you can remember it that way, too. Ten grand? Easy there, Vin. Uh, That was a little double talk, baby. He was trying to bribe me to dummy up on you. Dummy up? I know what happened. When you get through dreaming, try this for a bedtime story. Venanti hired Brown to pick up the winnings while he ran the table. Then with Brown dead, Venanti was going to fly back here in his private plane for the same alibi he's using now. Only he'd own the broken tea. You're lying. Shut up, Finn. Tell me more, Novak. The plan began to sour up when Alice tried to thumb a ride. Alice knew him, so he killed her. He still needed to kill Brown, but he figured then he could hang the double killings on me. That'd make it even better. You're on the needle, Novak. The only trouble was that Brown wasn't home. Finn had to chase him. When he finally found him, Brown was at your place. I don't know what happened there, except that Venanti must have killed Brown before he had a chance to talk. How was that? I'd gone to the store. So when you come back, Brown's dead, and Venanti tells you he did it to recover the money. Yeah. So you were going to double-cross me, baby. He's lying, I tell you. See if you can prove it to a jury. I should have known. In case you get any fancy ideas about trying to lie out of it, I got a witness to feel the motor you're playing. It's still hot. A ten-grand offer still stands. Uh Uh-uh. 
I need you to clear me. Yeah. And I could use the sole ownership of this joint. You wouldn't rat on me. Oh, watch me, baby. I'll let you rot in jail. Novak, I'll make it 25000 if you help me quiet this dame. You would, Ben? Start out by quieting this... <laughs> Lousy shots. They both lived. That is, Lenanti lived until he got a bad case of asthma in the San Quentin gas chamber. Skip got off with a flock of scars and some good advice from the judge to stay away from questionable characters. But advice is free, and Skip was the kind who went after the dough, so uh, I see her now and then. She's gone honest, I think. Sometimes we toss dice and... Uh, I've known her to lose. Heard on tonight's program were Ben Morris as Novak, John Galbraith as Inspector Hellman, Jack Lewis as Jocko, and Mary Milford as Skip, with Henry Leff, Jerry Walters, Kurt Martell, and Lucille Bliss. Special music by Otto Clare. Listen next week at this same time when over most of these stations, the American Broadcasting Company presents Pat Novak for Hire. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Nicely recorded. That was just a delight to listen to as far as audio and the dialogue. Up that Pat Novak was originally played by a young Jack Webb, more famous, of course, for being Joe Friday on Dragnet, both in radio and TV, and even a couple of movies for that matter. But uh, Ben Morris took over the role from him, and this is from, um, let's see, August 3rd, 1947, The Johnny Brown Gambling Ring is the title of this episode. But I hope you really dug that that was just a nice feel. And uh, yeah, we had a crime-oriented show after a big Vic and Sade opening. Um, a great variety on the big appreciation showcase. And it's been my pleasure to present all this as your appreciator. I'm Brett, and I like being the appreciator, bringing you this obscurest nonsense that really, I mean, does it have any deep meaning? It's dubious. This is just the entertainium that I like to entertain with. Yes, so uh, the next time we get together, there will be be more and i hope you join us again and in the meantime as i always like to well first if you've got any comments contributions ideas what have you always feel free to write me or send me audio files at kpqr.torc at gmail.com or you can make a comment on this show on the facebook page 
or at onsug.com. Don't forget the Big Onsug Archive, which is on archive.org, the home of so much stuff. I mean, if you had to reduce yourself to one internet address, I would heartily recommend, even better than YouTube, it may have, well, it's got a lot of videos, and you could never watch all those YouTubes. And let's face it, most of what's on YouTube anymore, oh boy, you got to really dig to find the good stuff. Even with the algorithm recommending me stuff, I find myself scrolling and scrolling when I go to YouTube anymore. But all well, that is digression. Let's let you go, and uh, we'll catch you the next time. Till then, set the controls for the heart of the fun.